turn it on and rip the knob off. Back again with another episode of the Wrestling Memory Grenade. Welcome everyone to episode number four. We've made it an entire month now, Steve. Yeah, it seems to be flying by, man, but I'm really enjoying going back and reliving some NWA 1989. And I'm your host, Ray Russell, and joining me once again, as you've already heard, is my co-host, Stephen Ekstack. Steve, always a pleasure, sir. Oh yeah, absolutely, man. It's a pleasure to be with you as well. And uh, everyone, this is a very special hybrid episode of The Grenade, as we are going to take you through a weekend of reviews of NWA TV programming uh, for the weekend of February 18th, and that will culminate with another big watch-along, the February 20th pay-per-view, Chi-Town Rumble. The first watch-along was so successful with Clash 5, and once we got past that, the dreaded Russian Assassins match, that show seemed to flow for me, Steve, and I'm looking forward to covering uh, our first pay-per-view of 1989. Yeah, the Clash 5 was fun after that first match. I enjoyed just talking with you and going over some things, so I'm looking forward to doing this one as well. It should be a lot of fun. And for those out of the loop, we'll be using the WWE Network version of the Chi-Town Rumble for the watch-along. But before we get to reviewing, I want to start off by saying we really appreciate everyone who's been downloading, listening, and subscribing to the show and following us on Twitter. A reminder that you can follow the Wrestling Memory Grenade on Twitter at Wrestling Grenade. That's R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade on Twitter. And with all that, let's get to the weekend TV reviews for the date of February 18th, 1989, as we head into the Chi-Town Rumble Monday night pay-per-view. And we'll kick things off with the syndicated programs, NWA Pro for February 18th, taped from Marietta, Georgia. Kick things off with a promo from Paulie Dangerously. They're doing it on a stage now, kind of like the World Wrestling Federation doing their, their on-stage promos. Another idea looks like George Scott took with him from the WWF here. Uh, David Crockett is still here. He's still showing up here and there, and oh my God, is he ever going to go away? David Crockett uh, interviews Polly here. It's just more of the same for Chi-Town Rumble. Get a quick match. Rick Steiner over Bill Holiday with a belly-to-belly in three and a half minutes. Uh, we see an uh, interesting vignette for Ricky Steamboat uh, at his own Ricky Steamboat-owned gym, voiced by Tony Schiavone, who is also gone by this point. Uh, we see Ricky Steamboat working out at his gym and getting ready for Ric Flair. Something different. We haven't seen that on the uh, nighttime program. Another match, Mike Rotunda with the Varsity Club in his corner over David Heath, the future Gangrel with a butterfly suplex in five minutes. Road Warriors promo followed, just more of the same. They're coming after the Varsity Club at Chi-Town Rumble. We get an interview with Bob Cottle with Ric Flair. Flair says uh, Ricky Steamboat is a proven commodity in this business, but he hasn't beaten Ric Flair, at least one-on-one. He gives Ricky the business for being the family man. Of course, Ric Flair says he's the best thing going today. Woo. And uh, just another good Flair promo. He's actually gotten better in his promos against Steamboat. He's kind of adapting to Steamboat's promo that we hear each and every week. Flair's kind of changing his up, but yet somehow he's able to come at Steamboat and uh, address what Ricky's saying. Yeah, I've noticed that. Um, I picked it up on that on the Saturday night show where he's talking about, you know, I'm going to live my life in the way I think a champion should be and not what you are, Ricky Steamboat. So, yeah, good job by Flair to switch it up a little bit. We get Sting over Kip Montana with the Scorpion Deathlock in about three and a half minutes. Of course, the one Billy Gunn does another job here, this time against Sting. Barry Windham, Kendall Windham teaming up once again. 
this time over George South and Gary Royal. No masks, though Royal and South are the cruel connection. Kendall hits the bulldog on South for the win in about three and a half minutes. Another promo, Bob Cottle interviews Sting. Sting's got Butch Reed at the Chi-Town Rumble. Just another generic promo hyping the show. Sting really has no beef with Reed. Pro closes pretty quickly here. We got the original Midnight Express with Paul E. over Mike Jackson and Trent Knight. I always liked Trent Knight more as the heel jobber than the, the babyface jobber here, but Knight looked good. Condry with the uh, skull-crushing finale or the stroke or whatever you want to call it on Trent. Match goes about five minutes. Condry was so good, I wish he would have uh, stuck around. I wish he had been the one that stuck around, and maybe, I guess they wouldn't have known this far in advance, but he might have made a good partner for Arn Anderson going into 1990. I don't know. Just something to think about. We move on to Worldwide, February 18th. Tony Schiavone still the announcer here. I would imagine this might be the end of Tony, though, as far as uh, recorded episodes go. Ring announcers Bob Cottle in the ring on this show. This is the definition of a nothing show. My notes are pretty much the results alone. Other than this Ricky Steamboat promo, it's actually more milk toast and more goody-goody than usual as uh, Steamboat addresses himself as the light side and Ric Flair's the dark side. I don't know if this is Star Wars. I don't know what's going on here, but it was just... Uh, I don't know, man. It's a good uh, thing that it's a good thing that Shy Town Rumble's right around the corner because Ricky's really running low on gas here with promos. I think so too. A lot of these guys are running low on gas as far as promos go. Uh, even though it was only it was a short build, well, I guess you got about two months. The matches didn't really take shape till about the end of January, so they only had like a three or four week build. But when you watch all the TV, man, they was running out of steam on what to say and when to say it. We have Jim Cornette's Midnight Express over Robbie Weiss and Pretty Boy Lloyd with a Vegematic on Lloyd in about seven minutes. It was quite a long squash match. Steamboat comes to ringside once again with his son and his wife. They're beating this to death, I'm telling you, Steve. With a, yeah. win, over, with a win over Trent Knight, cross-body block, five minutes. We get a flare promo during the match. Uh, Varsity Club six-man tag, all three. Doc, Sullivan, Rotunda over Rick Diamond, Billy Holiday, and once again, the one, Billy Gunn, Kip Montana. They get a win with the Oklahoma Stampede on holiday in about five and a half minutes. Generic Road Warriors promo. Usually I like something Hawks says in these, and this one was kind of just felt like just throw them out there and get a Road Warrior promo in. But yeah, they're still gunning for the Varsity Club. They're defending the titles against the Varsity Club, and it almost feels like uh, the Varsity Club are the ones that are uh, the, being chased rather than the roadies. Yeah, it definitely does feel that way. The roadies want to get their hands on them, and I can't say I blame them. Uh, it's just different seeing them in that position compared to what they normally are. Tag team action with Sting and Lex Luger over the Cruel Connection. Uh, we get the Stinger Splash and the Scorpion and, and Cruel Connection number one, for argument's sake, in about five and a half minutes. TV champion Rick Steiner over Mike Thor with the Belly to Belly in four and a half minutes. And then uh, the odd pairing but interesting pairing of Barry Wyndham and Butch Reed over the team of David Heath and Bob Emery. So instead of Wyndham teaming with his brother here, he gets a, a tag team match with Butch Reed. Would have been great. I would have liked to have seen a little more out of him. Looks like an awesome team just looking at him in the ring. But unfortunately, Reed takes Heath out in about a minute and a half with the with the diving shoulder block. So this was a nothing match. Yeah, it would have been cool to see more action from him. But yeah, it was nothing. This whole show was nothing. And we go into the nighttime show, the World Championship Wrestling Show for February 18th. We open the show with Ric Flair. Uh, the video of Ric Flair making his entrance at the Clash of the Champions to kick off the show. We go live to the studio or taped to the studio with Jim Ross and Magnum TA. They bring out Ricky Steamboat. Uh, again, Steamboat emphasizes he doesn't want to be the man. One man doesn't make an island, but he does want the world title. And I'm just, I'm over Steamboat promo, so let's just get to the pay-per-view where he shines at this point. 
Yeah, same here. Um, he comes out like thanking Ross for the good luck, asking Magnum how he's doing. Just way over the top, good guy. Like it, it, it's kind of disgusting. Even if you're a good guy, you can still show some heat or you know get angry and show a different side, like where you're you're mad. But he he never got that from Steamboat in this build. Not not this particular build anyway. And next we have Cornette's Midnight Express over Bill Holiday and David Heath in about five minutes. Vegematic on Holiday. Dangerously promo during the match. Cornette walks over and he cuts his own promo during the match. So both managers use this match as a backdrop in order to sell the pay-per-view. Cornette says, we're 48 hours from someone losing their career. You can, you really sum it up in one sentence right there. Pretty much. We go on to the Varsity Club, and they're debuting their newest member here. Jim Ross tries to get Kevin Sullivan to introduce their newest member, which is Dan Spivey, to start things, but Sullivan has a promo to cut first, so he kind of goes, yeah, this is Dan Spivey from, from Georgia or whatever college he was from. But, <laughs> and yeah. then he goes to do his promo on the Road Warriors. Then we go back to Dan Spivey, who cuts this interesting promo. Animal, I'll be glad to see you in the Chicago. Tell him, big man. Hey, Road Warriors, sound like you guys got some problems, dudes. Hey! You guys have got a whole lot of trouble coming your way. And when Kevin and the good doctor gets on you and plays a little howdy duty on your coconut, oh, you guys, I see nothing but hard times coming your way. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's like four mini sound bites out of that that I could just clip and save for a variety of reasons for the future. I don't know what playing howdy duty on your coconut means or where he got that term from, but just a phenomenal promo by Dan Spivey there. Welcome to the NWA, Dan Spivey. <laughs> right. I, I liked it. I, it's off the wall and crazy, but I, I didn't it mind match, it. I thought it was. It matches his eyes, certainly. <laughs> yeah. Like when I, I was listening to it, I'm like, what the heck is he going to say? Then he says that. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, that's funny. I mean, it stuck out and it was different. So, uh, the only thing I didn't like is just he's like you guys got you dudes have some problems like it, it just seemed like cheap and segregate when you use the word dude but uh, other than that I liked it. Spivey uh, wrestles his first match on TV with a win over Tony Suber in five minutes with the side slam or as Gorilla liked to call it the side suplex. During the match, Magnum TA uh, mentioned uh, mentioned Spivey's eyes. He says Spivey's eyes. He looks like he's plugged into ten thousand volts. I always enjoyed Dan Spivey's look. I did too. That's why I put it down. He, he looked good, but the offense, I don't know. It just wasn't, it didn't seem to be there just yet. Uh, maybe he's getting his feet underneath him a little bit. I don't know if he's been out or what, but work in Japan or what, but uh, he, he looked a little off to me. And, uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm fine with the Sullivan and Dr. Death tag team, but I'm kind of looking at the varsity club now. Man, what a, what a tag team Dr. Death and Dan Spivey would make versus the roadies. Oh, my God. Oh, that'd be nice. I mean, we get, some, we get a lot of Dan later on this year, so I'm excited. I can't wait to for the skyscrapers and those guys. Dan and Doc would have been awesome, too. Magnum TA interviews Lex Luger. It's more of the same Luger gunning for Wyndham's U.S. title, so he can find himself back in contention for Flair's world title. It writes itself at this point. Yeah. We go on to a Ricky Steamboat squash over Jerry Price with the crossbody in about five minutes. Prior to about Steamboat and his wife and son again. <laughs> bring him out to the ring they are everywhere i'm telling you bonnie steamboat is making sure that she is just <laughs> bonnie steamboat is making sure she's she's being noticed by everyone on television that's for sure and, singer, and, man. and i'm gonna leave it at that i'm gonna be polite and i'm gonna leave all my other thoughts and comments to myself at this point right now with uh, bonnie steamboat <laughs> thank you steamer looks good here you know 
if you watch the finish, and I kind of like this, if anybody wants to go back on the WWE Network and check this out, Steamo goes up for the crossbody. His head is literally, not figuratively, literally in the lights. His skull is inside the, the light cover. He literally looks up to make sure you know <laughs> where he's at before he kind of dives off with the, the crossbody block. So yeah, literally the, his head was in the lights. Yeah, that's, it's crazy. Those lights were pretty low. Uh, a couple guys almost hit him. I think we run into something similar later on with the, the SWAT team as well. Another thing is Steamboat finishes guys off with the, the flying crossbody, high crossbody, crossbody block, whatever you want to call it. There were, that was done to death in the 80s and 90s, I think, by a lot of guys who had no business doing it. And, and two of those guys are certainly the Fantastics because I've watched since we started doing this Fulton and Rogers try their hand at it and just know. But there's a lot of guys that have done it. I think Steamboat, it looked like ballet. I mean, the way he came, it just looked beautiful and it looked right. And it looked like an actual move instead of just somebody falling on somebody and making a cover. So I think this is the only case where I actually enjoy the crossbody as a finisher. Yeah, I can definitely see that. It's kind of like when Michael Jackson does the moonwalk, you don't really want to do the moonwalk because it's never going to look as good as Michael Jackson. So when you have like the greatest at the crossbody doing it every week, Anybody else that comes out and tries it, it's not going to look very good compared to Ricky Steamboat. And then we get a bumper. Uh, this is the NWA We Wrestle slogan. I like it. Like I said, Dave, I Meltzer, wasn't, Dave Meltzer wasn't a fan, but I, I, like I liked it. I like the logo, it. too. I like the logo that they had thrown up on the bumper. It looked really nice, too. Yeah. Move on to NWA Tag Team Champions, the Road Warriors, over Nasty Ned Brady, one of your favorites, and Julio Barrera, <laughs> who I think goes on to be Jumbo Beretta also on the uh, indies and I think that, that squashes for WCW. What's that? I don't want to go too far off here because we can, but I don't know if you ever played the video game Saturday Night Slam Masters. Is that the jumbo that they got for his character? I, don't I know have if no idea. I'm, I'm not even familiar with what it is. I apologize. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, if, if there's somebody out there, let me know. Cause there's like a Vader character, um, a Titan character. There's a couple guys like Biff and Gunlock from up in Canada. So I'm, they're based off of real wrestlers and jumbo. I always wondered if Jumbo Beretta was the guy, and it, it kind of looked like him, so I'm assuming it is. But Interesting. Very interesting. Jumbo Beretta may be in a video game. Now I've heard everything. But the, the roadies over <laughs> Ned Brady and Julio Barrera in about a minute and a half. Animal pins Brady with a power slam off the middle turnbuckle. Uh, I like Magna made a comment here. He said he doesn't know who's more lucky, the guy who got knocked off the apron or the guy who was in the ring, or who who was less lucky, I'm sorry, but... I mean, it, I just thought it was funny. I'm really starting to enjoy Magnum TA on commentary. Yeah, I picked up on that comment as well. I thought it was very good. Like, you want to get dumped out right away, or do you want to take a beating for a couple minutes? So either way, you're you're screwed. But yeah, I like that comment as well. Another interview this time with the Road Warriors, Hawk and Ellering saying that Dan Spivey was added to the Varsity Club because the Varsity Club needed the help. We have Sting over Max MacGyver. I love that MacGyver now has uh, tights that say Mad Max on him. So at least he's trying to get himself over on the Indies somewhere as Mad Max MacGyver. But Sting with the submission here. Stinger splashed and Scorpion ends it in just a little over four and a half minutes. Butch Reed joined commentary at one point during the match. I was wondering, uh, what what did you think about uh, future opponents walking? Like, when guys are getting ready to face each other at a pay-per-view or at a big show, what were your thoughts in regards to the uh, opponent walking out and cutting a promo like 20 feet away from the ring. Did you like that, or, or was that just – did that kind of kill it for you? Yeah, I mean, like, in this instance, it doesn't necessarily bother me. 
because like there's not a lot of heat on this match between Sting and Butch Reed. But right. I mean the Cornette stuff where Cornette's walking to the ring and Paul E's like right there, but they kind of downplayed yeah. that by saying if they touch each other, then they get suspended right. and the match don't happen. So if, if it's done properly in, the, in that sense, it's it's fine. But the NWA they seem to do it a lot leading into this show where guys were just coming out and talking when they were like five feet away from each other. If you want to get your hands on him, why don't you just go get your hands on him? That's what it do. Agreed. And then we move on with the Ric Flair promo. It's uh, Flair's out there with Matsuda and Wyndham, but Rick does the talking. Uh, this is actually my favorite Ric Flair promo to date since we've been doing this, so I grabbed a sound bite, and here we go. 48 hours away, champ, and champ, that's, I know you really enjoy that, and we enjoy calling oh, you that. Oh, you know I do, Jim Ross. Monday night, and keep in mind... As we've all been informed, we're talking about 48 hours from right now. And when your name is Ric Flair and someone tells you that your whole life is in front of you in 48 hours, you know, woo, I'm going to spend it the way I like it. That's the bottom line. I'm going to be in Chicago in the longest limousine money can buy. I'm going to fly into Chicago and the nicest Learjet money can buy. I'm going to style and profile along Rush Street with some of the most beautiful women that Chicago has to offer. The bottom line is Ric Flair, the world's heavyweight wrestling champion, is going to live life the way he feels a world champion should. Steamboats, we are exact opposites. Don't misunderstand me. I respect your family. And most of all, Steamboat, I respect you. Because, bud, you are a quality athlete. But Monday night, and let me say it one more time, when you walk that aisle, Remember this, Woo! to be the man, you've got to beat the man. One more thing, diamonds are forever. Woo! And so, with Ric Flair, baby, remember that. And a couple of Ric Flair's famous lines there. Good promo by Flair. Love it. The crowd was eating that up, too. The guy was out there almost finishing the promo for him, and I, it was just really cool to hear. So good. U.S. champion Barry Windham with a win over Alan Kinsey. That's Alan Kinsey. He makes his return. I can't believe it. The same guy that did the job to Butch Reed in the side headlock takeover a few episodes ago. Kinsey does the job here again, but this time it's to the Larry in about four and a half minutes. Interview with Jim Cornette. I'm getting repetitive by saying that Cornette and everyone else is getting repetitive. But, you know, we're going on four months now of this Midnight's versus Midnight's feud, and uh, it all comes to an end here in just uh, about 48 hours. So uh, one final interview here by Jim Cornette on TV. Uh, Is this the one where uh, Stan Lane says uh, they're going to make Paul Lee flatter than his girlfriend? (laughs) I know know Stan Stan says that in one of the promos. I didn't didn't note it from when he said it. This might be the one. This was the one. I I thought that was hilarious. (laughs) Uh, We see the debuting Vince Young which you may also recognize from the WWF is Mark Young and when he sported the Stars and Stripes uh, tights in the uh, 89, later in 89. He's actually the adopted son of Chief J. Strongbow, 
Uh, I'm, I'm assuming George Scott might have done Strongbow a favor here by getting Vincent Young, Vince Young, whatever, on TV. Gets a win over Trent Knight with the sleeper, also a nod to Strongbow. That was Strongbow's finisher for years. Uh, Vince Young gets the win here in about five minutes. He does a little break dance after the match, and it gets it gets more boos than I, I, I remembered. I thought it was kind of funny, the boos that he got when he got when he stood up from doing the break dancing. Yeah, he got booed out of the building. Young would go on. You know, he's only here. He's only in the NWA for about a month before Vince signs him. He signs with the WWF about a month or so from here. I think he ends up being uh, working in the WWF for about a, a month, a year and a year and a half as a uh, enhancement talent. I think his only win on television comes near the end of this year. It's over Barry Horowitz. Might have been on a primetime show, but yeah, here's Vince Young. He looks like he was primed for some form of a push here, but only with the NWA for about a month. Then we get another debut. The Samoan SWAT team of Samu and Fatu, the future head shrinkers, over Dale Lamparus and Bob Emery in about four minutes. Fatu kills Lamparus with a big splash off the top rope. I-, I liked that they were selling it like they had set up an interview with Sting, but the Samoans were so unpredictable, they attacked their opponents and started their match before Sting's promo could take place. So, And then you go from there, they had the managers come out, Pauly, Hiro Matsuda, Kevin Sullivan, Gary Hart. These managers came out and were spectating the SST match, maybe maybe taking notes, scouting them for potential management. So I like that they really pushed this SST over here big. Yeah, they did. Uh, they got the Macho Man Bam Bam treatment with the managers. Uh, they didn't show them, though, which was weird. But That's they mentioned what... that they came out and showed them. They, they yeah. came out to watch them. Yeah, that was another thing I, I wanted to note. Jim Ross on commentary mentioned that all these managers out there, I didn't see any of them. I can't say if they were or weren't. You'd, you'd think they'd be have a little better production, though, and get the cameras on the managers if they really were out there watching. I'm not really sure. But, yeah, Jim Ross made, made sure to mention that on show during the match that these managers are out there. He mentioned them by name. He named several. So, I mean, if they were there or not, I don't know. But it was it was nice to get them over. I thought the SST always brought it to the ring. They were very realistic, very physical wake you up squashes instead of put you to sleep arm bar type squashes. So oh, I really yeah. enjoyed that here. Good debut for the SST. Jim Ross with the promo with Sting, this the promo that was supposed to take place before this match. Just another Sting promo on Butch Reed. Nothing nothing to see here. Another interview with the Wyndham's. Barry's there to talk about Lex Luger. Kendall's there basically because Barry's there. <laughs> That's really about about That's it. Pretty much it. No. It seemed like Ross was offended that Matsuda talked in Japanese, and he's like, can you say that again? And uh, he said something else, and then Ross is like, okay. Like, is, Ross just seems like he's completely pissed off that there's a Japanese guy pie and flare and Wyndham. Like, it seems legit. I don't know what the deal is with it, but man, bad. And as I brought up earlier in this episode about the wrestlers being so close to one another that are feuding or going to be wrestling each other on an upcoming event, here's Lex Luger coming out for a match in the ring, and he, and he bypasses Barry Windham there. Nothing happens, but it was a nice little tease. We got Luger over Keith Steinborn with the torture rack in a little over four minutes. Polly dangerously uh, comes out for an interview, and he actually stays on commentary for the remainder of the show, so it kind of picks it up a little bit. Michael Hayes and Dick Murdoch over Mac Anderson and El Negro in five and a half minutes. Murdoch over Anderson with the elbow drop. I mean, I, my my notes here are El Negro, really? That, that translates literally to the black. Like, the black what? I mean, talk about lazy. Yeah, absolutely. But dangerously on commentary for the remainder of the show. Abdullah the Butcher over Rick Allen with a couple of elbow drops. Another awful match. Gary Hart joins for commentary for a little bit during this match. 
We've been talking about the recent obsession with the women in the crowd, and they even showed, you know, a makeout session at Clash 5. Well, it gets worse here for me. There's a girl in the audience, it's her birthday, and she just turned 18. So they put her on camera because she's legal. And then dangerously even asks about getting her phone number. Just super creepy, and this just continues. Unbelievable. Yes, that was disgusting. Like, he said it under his breath, so that means she's legal? Like, wait, what are we doing? <laughs> disgusting. Ricky Steamboat interview here next. He basically says he doesn't want to be put in Lex Luger's predicament where he can't wrestle Flair again, so I, I thought this was really good. The Dragon says this match for him is all or nothing in Chicago, so it made it have more value than everything he said up until now about not doing drugs and, and paying for his kid's you know uh, college fund or something like that, so... I like that he just said this is all or nothing in Chicago because I, you know, I can't lose. If I lose, I'll end up at the back of the line. So I enjoyed that. NWA TV champion Rick Steiner teaming with Eddie Gilbert this week over Cruel Connection a little over three minutes. Rick Steiner gets the win with the belly to belly. I don't know how I feel about them teaming. Uh, you know, I'm down the, with the goofy Steiner character having a friend, and he has ties to Gilbert going back to the UWF. In fact, I think Gilbert makes a great buddy for Rick to keep him in line because you kind of need that. It's kind of like Of Mice and Men style. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie or read that book. But yeah. uh, but I don't want to see Steiner being slid into a team here. That's a little scary. He's just so over as a singles. Like, why ruin it? Especially, like, right before the pay-per-view. And we close the show with Eddie Gilbert and Rick Steiner doing an interview. Steiner, you know, discussing wrestling Mike Rotunda at the pay-per-view. Rick Steiner says uh, he isn't stupid. He just has problems. I wrote that down as a note. I'm not stupid. I just have problems. And he talks to Alex. Uh, Eddie Gilbert vows to stay with Steiner from this point forward, although I have no idea where he is at Chi-Town Rumble because he's nowhere near Rick Steiner. But we'll get to that when we get to that. We'll see what it does for both of their careers moving forward. I'm, I'm a little skeptical. Yeah, me too. This this was the start of the end for both of them, both of their characters and their their pushes that they were having. And that'll finish up the weekend of TV, which means it's just about time for the watch-along portion of the show. I'll give everyone a minute to queue up their WWE network, and while we're waiting, I'll just remind everyone that you can follow the Wrestling Memory Grenade on Twitter at Wrestling Grenade. That's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. Now, Steve, if you're ready, I'm ready. I'm ready. A quick warning, once again, I did grab a few sound bites of the show in advance, so if my audio bites aren't perfectly synced with your video, don't worry out there. If you're not queued up, go ahead and pause this podcast to get yourself ready for the show. If you are ready, let's just keep going. And now we'll count you down. Get ready to hit play as we prepare to review Flair vs. Steamboat, Luger vs. Wyndham, and everything else on the NWA's Chi-Town Rumble. And we're going to count down in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1... Everyone press play. And what you're hearing here on the WWE WWE Network's version of the pay-per-view right here is obviously not the original music used for the intro. Not only does it suck that we don't get the original music, but this isn't even original for the network. Uh, They use the same theme here as they use for all the uh, Mid-South Wrestling episodes. Lazy. Yes. (laughs) Lazy indeed. And we're live. Right here, UIC Pavilion in Chicago, Illinois. Reportedly 8,000 fans in attendance for the Chi-Town Rumble. Oh, I love that apron. Love that color green with the NWA logo. I did too. It looks really good. Oh, you know what happens when there's this many empty seats. They're filing in still. People are still filing in. And we got Jim Ross and Magnum TA out here. And I know Magnum's uh, acted as a host in the past of pay-per-views, but uh, I do believe this is uh, his first pay-per-view as color commentator. Yeah, 
I think I think it is as well. I'd be interested to hear how good he does. Magnum's really been coming into his own lately on television. I I didn't I don't remember really caring for Magnum uh, on color, but uh, he's starting to grow on me. And, and watch going back and watching this this particular era of his uh, shot at <laughs> doing the six hundred five TV show. And they're running over the matches right now. They're actually going to be playing a music video here too in a f- few minutes, um, set to the more some more generic, uh, I believe. WWE Network music. It's something different anyway, and I'll point this out throughout the entire pay-per-view. There's there's all sorts of uh, WWF influences in the production moving forward, and it's really interesting to see how many ideas they, I don't want to say stole from the WWF, but basically they're utilizing a lot more things that are that, that make the WWF the number one company right now. Obviously, their production, NWA's production, not nearly up to par with Vince McMahon's production, however. Yeah, definitely not. That's a long, that's a big hill to climb. Um, going from what WWF's doing and trying to implement that. Now, I will say this also, you know, this uh, show clocks in at about two and a half hours. I believe the original airing of this pay-per-view went about two hours and 50 minutes. And the, uh, chain, the difference in that is a whole lot of uh, introductions, uh, ring introductions have been edited out of here, which is unfortunate. And then uh, also, there's a one particular promo that's been edited out of here, and probably for good reason. I'm assuming the reason, but I, I won't get into that until we actually get into that match later. And actually, I went in and I deep dived into my storage, and I pulled out my old trusty original broadcast of Shy Town Rumble, and I recorded audio of that promo. So even though it's not on the WWE Network, we'll be listening to that later, and we'll discuss that. And that's a little interesting as well. But that's coming up later on. And right now we're watching a, a video package that I mentioned here of some of the highlights uh, or in, in the past of some of the stars participating here. I love this right here with the Fantastics doing the duck, double monkey flip on Dr. Death. I always love that spot. Oh, yeah, that's pretty good. Unfortunately, the Fantastics are not on this card. We've got a lot yeah, of good that is matches. unfortunate. You know, we've got a lot of good matches coming up, but we also have one snoozer, and that's going to kick things off here in a little bit, and that's Michael Hayes and the Russian Assassin. Has no business being on the pay-per-view, beginning, middle, or close. And fair warning to everyone, I typically, I don't, you know, I don't like to record Michael Hayes promos, at least in this era right now. They're, it's just, <laughs> he tries too hard to be a babyface, and they're terrible. But I wanted to, I, I like to play a little sound audio from the shows as we get going on the watch-alongs. Unfortunately, with the generic WWE Network music on the intro, I was forced to come up with something else to record, and it ended up being Michael Hayes' promo. The only good thing I can say about that is Bob Cottle's there with him. (laughs) Yeah, not even Bob Cottle can carry that. And I thought that was interesting, too, that they wound up uh, using uh, Bob Cottle as the interviewer and Magnum TA on color. That was an interesting choice as well, because Cottle, you know, had been known to have been an announcer for many, many years. So it's interesting to try and change things up and shake things up. Tony Schiavone's out the door. Jim Ross is the new number one guy. And, and now Magnum's basically filling that other spot. And Bob Cottle relegated to just the interviewer here on this pay-per-view anyway. I should I also... That... Oh, go ahead, buddy. You think that's because of his looks? Like maybe he's, he looks older, so they're trying to get a younger look? Um, I think, like I think, I think that's a... Well, if it was about looks, I think Tony would have been on there over uh, Jim Ross. <laughs> but I don't know that anybody in the NWA was lo- worried about looks at the time. I don't know if that was a thing. Uh, you know, I think that's a Vince thing. 
I mean, look at all the sports we have, uh, NBA, NFL, all these great old, you know, legendary announcers. They they weren't taken off TV based on their age or how old they looked. And here we got that promo with Michael Hayes. Fans, we're here with Michael P.S. Hayes just moments before a very important match in, in your career, Mike. The big, rough, tough, mean Russian assassin. But you've walked a bad street before. Can you feel it, Bob? Can you feel it? Everybody out there right now, if you don't feel it, then you ain't got no feeling at all. Here we are, the setting, live noise at the UIC Pavilion. Got 10,000 fans out there screaming, sound like a million. And the reason why is Shytown Rumble, where a lot of careers might take a major, major stumble. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, I feel like Pete Rose out here in the lead match of an all-star game with this all-star card. You got four major titles that could change hands tonight. Do you realize that? Four titles. The number one contender title, the US title. You got the world television title, the world tag team title, and then the thing with the fever pitch, the biggie, Ric Flair and Rick Steamboat. But you know, I got my work cut out for me. This ain't no cakewalk whatsoever. So now, as you feel it, and as the lights go down, and you hear the music coming up, that means it's time for PS to do his stuff. So, Bob, it's time when the music gets grinding. You know, so P.S. got to be right on time. So this is the way it is. Shotdown Rumble 89. Ladies and gentlemen, it is showtime. And fans, he's on the way, his way. Let's go to the ring now. Michael P.S. Hayes. And there's Michael Hayes for you. And we get Dirty Doc Hayes in our opener here. Always fun to watch a, a singles match involving Michael Hayes. You know, I was wondering, Steve, what's your take on Hayes shilling the pay-per-view there since his match is basically fodder? In fact, when he ran down the card, he, he failed to mention who he was even taking on, his opponent in the ring. He just said, and I got a match too, so, basically. So I was just wondering what yeah, your take on a promo like that. I mean, if it was like an event center or something like that, it'd be great. But with it being like he's about to go out and have a match with somebody, he doesn't even touch on his opponent. It's, it seems like he doesn't even care about the match. He cares about getting the pay-per-view over or not his own match so i didn't like it but hello <laughs> absolutely finally they focus on <laughs> a female worth looking at anyway but uh you know another thing that i was curious about in regards to the michael hayes experiment we have going on right here the baby face experiment like it just feels so forced and so contrived michael hayes just can i mean he's trying his damnedest to pull off this baby face thing and i just think we've come to the end of it and i was just wondering your take on hayes as a baby face i don't like it at all trying way too hard and it's just not working like he's run through you know four or five different partners at the beginning of this first two months of the in the company they're trying really really hard to recreate something that can't be recreated you can only catch lighting in a bottle once usually with with a certain gimmick or a certain wrestler so the fact that they tried to force something that just wasn't working i didn't buy it i don't think anybody else was buying it either and that's why they was trying so many partners right and another quick note here before the match gets going, uh, the Angel of Death was actually Russian assassin number one. Uh, but depending on who you listen to, he was either uh, fired or he quit here in the last couple days uh, in the promotion. So Jack Victory now becomes the de facto Russian assassin number one. He gets promoted from number two to number one here to take on Michael Hayes here on the pay-per-view. And this isn't Jack Victory's only match here tonight. And we'll get into more on that later as well. You know, this this has to be a humbling experience for Hayes, I have to say. A guy, you know, that was one to two years in the business, headlining the Superdome with JYD, with the blinding angle. 
selling out arenas in Dallas for over a year straight. And here he's basically holding the fort down in a glorified squash match that should have been a dark match, if you ask me. (laughs) And most people at his age, you know, and he's just shy of 30. And most people at his age are just now getting that push, just now, you know, realizing their talent and, and coming to their own. Meanwhile, he did all this in his early 20s. So you can imagine, you would imagine that he would have had more success much longer than he did in, you know, as a professional wrestler. I mean, the guy retired by 1992, a full-time by 1992, he was 32 years old. That's insane. And, and maybe, you know, maybe he could have lasted a little longer if he would just been able to work in the ring. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. He's, he's an odd, it's an odd case study uh, with as far as his peak was so quick. Like it was so fast that he became the top, you know, top of the line in the in Mid-South and world class. And then he even had that brief stint in the WWF with the Freebirds. So, I mean, he was, he was it for that short period of time. I'm, I'm just curious. Do you think he just made enough money that he's like, you know what? I'm not going to kill myself for 20, 30 years and wrestle. I'm going to take my voice. He does have a great voice. Doesn't mean what comes out of his mouth is entertaining, but his voice is good for selling things. So I'm, I'm just... I'd be curious to ask him, like, you know, why, why 92? Why did you just stop at the peak of your career or the peak of your prime become a shill? You know, I mean, I can't answer, obviously can't answer the question for him either. But uh, if you were watching what he was doing in the ring in 1992, I suppose it was time to hang up the boots. It might have been time to hang up the boots before that, if you ask other people. But I mean, I, I guess I get it, but it just seems so odd that, that he went into retirement at such an early age. I mean, when you really go back and look at it. Yeah, and also it's like, you know what, doing very little work for right out of the gate. Like, uh, so it's like, why why try to get better when I was already the top draw when I was doing very little? I don't know. It's weird. It's an odd ebb and flow for his career. And here we but, go with uh, the awful Michael Hayes armbar. And for anyone curious, the time stamp, if you wonder where we are right now, we're at 11, 53, 54, 55, 56. And Hayes working the arm of Jack Victory there. So I noticed this referee, man. He looks like he has, like, the Athletic Commission badge on. Is this, like, a, an Athletic Commission guy, or is this... Uh... You know, uh, when I I actually watched this pay-per-view the other day. I kind of went over it to see if there was anything I could catch to take a couple notes on. And I thought the same thing as you. I didn't put that in my notes, but I, I, I did remember... I do remember thinking that when I was watching this, when I saw him. So this is clearly a state athletic guy, because it's... It's uh, definitely not Tommy Young or Teddy Long, and it's not even Byron Scott, though I think this referee is better than Byron Scott. Byron Scott, of course, the son of George Scott, not the NBA player, who uh, refereed here during George Scott's ten- tenor, tenure in the NWA. And this guy, you know, I, I remember watching this match the other day, and the guy, I, I think this referee holds his own. I-, I think they put him in the right match. You know, they have to force their way into working X amount of matches. I don't know if it's one or two or whatever it is, but... They usually find their way onto the show so they can get paid. Uh, the State Athletic Commission definitely wants paid. And uh, I, I think they picked the right match. Nice and slow and easy. No tricks, no gimmicks, no funny finishes. Just <laughs> it's a Michael Hayes match. I mean, there's really not much to it. What else can you say? And yeah, while, we're, exactly. while, we're, while we're waiting for this paint to dry or match to end, same difference, I should note the ring announcer tonight is also Gary Michael Capetta. And I love me some Gary Michael Capetta. I hate to compare him to the Fink and say Gary's number two because I think they're equally as good. They were both very different. 
there's room for both of them to be number one in my world. So yeah, I'm going to cheat and call them both number one in, in my world as professional wrestling announcers. And just, just think at one time, you know, in the late seventies, early eighties, Vince McMahon had them both. He had both guys on his payroll and it's just something Crazy. to think about. And it's a terrible decision here. Cause when the NWA lets, or not, yeah. When Ted Turner, the WCW lets Gary go, or, or if he quit, I'm not really sure how that came up. I know Gary explains it in his book and I've read it and it's just been so long. I don't really remember, but, I know when he leaves, you know, it's after Michael Buffer comes in. Buffer's getting paid a zillion dollars per match, basically, to, to ring an ounce. And Michael's getting this, you know, basic flat, you know, pay. And uh, as a wrestling fan, uh, I don't know about you, but I'll say this. As a wrestling fan, when Michael Buffer came in, the first night he was there in WCW, I think, was it a clash or a pay-per-view? I want to say it was a clash. I don't remember. But when Buffer came in, he meant absolutely nothing to me. He added zero credibility to professional wrestling for me. I didn't know him by name. I had watched boxing and I still didn't know him by name. I didn't even like his voice. Like that, that's a preference. I'm not even going to get into that. I know he was big in boxing in the boxing world and Bischoff was going for the name value. But again, I hated his explanation of what the wrestlers were wearing, uh, screwing up their names and everything else. And I do know that in boxing, you, you, you typically explain, you know, what the, what the wrestlers wearing and whatnot. And that's fine. It didn't work here. I didn't like it. It, it came off hokey. Did, do you think he messed up boxing introductions? Do you think he messed up Mike Tyson's name, Evander Holyfield? Absolutely not. In the WCW, you know, for years he was there, and we were still getting as late as, you know, when Bret Hart came in. Bret Clark. I mean, the guy, I don't think he ever took it fully seriously. And he didn't even, you know, take this, you know, he's getting paid to be a professional. Whether it's boxing and it's a real fight or it's professional wrestling, you're paid to go out there and do with your shtick. And that's what he needed to go out there and do. And I just felt sometimes he... I mean, he, he. I know he had. A, he has quite an ego about him, from what I've what I've seen on him. But I, I just uh, was never a fan, and and his his spiel worked in boxing, and I'm fine with that. But not here in wrestling. And you can give me Gary Capetta any day over him, and the money they paid Buffer per match was just ridiculous. Yeah, I, I th- initially like you mean on paper, I look at it a little bit different than you. Um, the professionalism part, definitely. Like if you're getting paid a ton of money to come in. To, to make these matches, these big matches, more important. You should at least know the people's names. You got one, maybe two matches that you're ring announcing. It takes five minutes to learn these guys' names, if that. So it's like, take that job serious. Do your job. Say their names properly. Get this stuff over. But on paper, like, I look at it like they bring in Mike, uh, Michael Buffer, and they, you know, he's the boxing guy. He does the main events. He does them all. But he got he gets those hyped and it's big time. It gives that big fight feel, right? So I, I I appreciate Bischoff going at it at that angle. But I think after you do it every pay per view, every clash, every main event um, match, I, I think it's overdone and it's overplayed. And David Penzer, Gary Michael Capetta, any of the guys that they've had could have just they could have sold that match even more than what Michael Buffer did because one they're invested because they work there too, they know the names and everything else. They're not going to mess it up. It's not going to stand out. And three, like you, you basically say, "Here, guys, uh, you can come out here and you can, you're good enough to ring announce the first seven matches, but you ain't good enough for the main event." So, like, it could be in a slap of the face of those guys. So, right. Um, I appreciate that. I see what he's going for, and I like it. But uh, I like the idea behind it. But I don't. The delivery and the execution just wasn't very good at all. 
Right. And I and I think I agree with you there. If if he had come around once in a while, a Halloween Havoc main event, a Starcade main event, maybe a Super yeah, Bowl exactly. main event. That's fine. I mean, but it, yeah, it was it was drove into the ground just too much for me. And I think the only other ring announcer I put Michael Buffer above as far as wrestling goes is maybe Joan Rivers. That's another celeb that took the payday and didn't bother to take their job seriously either. And go figure. <laughs> oh, Joan Rivers. Do you do you remember what I'm talking about? WrestleMania two. Yeah, I, yeah. She, I, she and I can, <laughs> and I can hear her right now for Mania Two. The Ace Comedy Funny Man, Bob Orton. You know, <laughs> you Joan Rivers. And while I'm at it, you too, Michael Buffer. Gary Capetta got robbed. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, he did. And I'm sorry, guys. I, I hate to take away from this awesome, phenomenal match with the Russian assassin locking in that chin lock. Michael Hayes trying to Hulk up out of it here. You know, the good news here with Michael Hayes, Steve, is that. It appears the merry-go-round of Hayes' tag team partners has ended, but the bad news is it appears he's getting a singles push now, and that leads to more questionable booking in the coming weeks, booking I know you won't be happy with. Yeah, I already know what's coming, and it's a head-scratcher. <laughs> it's a head-scratcher indeed, so I guess we'll save that for when it happens. But No, when, when on, Michael Hayes, you know, as a heel, was a great talker, a ticket seller. You know, he had that bad street th- theme, you know, that was you could get you over as hell, and... He strut the way he strutted out in the flashy capes and whatnot. He had all of that, but then Hayes, you know, then once he got in the ring, he became the very definition of. And then the bell rang, and that's basically you know describes Michael Hayes more than you know. I know I know a lot of people like to use that for the Ultimate Warrior as well, but I'd also like to think that the Warrior might have had a, a couple of you know good main event matches. Whereas I don't know even if Michael Hayes had bigger storylines in his time against JYD and 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 guys like that, but. I don't know that Hayes ever had a match as good as maybe Warrior had with Savage at WrestleMania 7 or, or even Hogan at WrestleMania 6. So I, I think Hayes becomes the definition of, and then the bell rang, certainly. Yeah, his face should be right up next to that in the dictionary, the wrestling dictionary, maybe Michael Hayes. I, I'm not, I love the Warrior. Uh, he's the reason I'm a wrestling fan, so like, I'm probably biased. But yeah, I'd much rather watch... Warrior Savage, Warrior Hogan, the Rick Rude matches, you know, from WrestleMania 5, SummerSlam 89, and those before I watch any Michael Hayes match. Now, I'm not, I can't say I'm well-versed in Mid-South. I never really fully watched it and lived that feud or know much about it. So I, I'm not going to say Michael Hayes is terrible because I've never seen him at his best, but I have seen the majority of the world-class run, and that place was hot as fire. Um yeah. And it was mainly because of Michael Hayes and the Freebirds. And we go, um, right. Yeah, I mean, uh, the Freebirds all together. And we go back to the brilliance of Bill Watts, adding Buddy Roberts to the Freebirds as the third member, so that there were two good workers in the ring and a great gifted talker in Hayes cutting the promos for them. You know, Watts didn't really want Hayes in the ring at all. He had actually given Ro- Roberts his, uh, Buddy Roberts his first big push as a tag team with Jerry Brown throughout the 70s as the original Hollywood Blondes, their manager at the time, Sir Oliver Humperdinck. And after a good six or seven year run in the 70s, Buddy Roberts is a tag team with Jerry Brown. Roberts went on to do a little bit of singles work. I think it was just down in Florida there near the end of the 70s before Watts came calling again, knowing that Buddy was a solid hand, a great bumper, well-versed in tag teaming. Watts plugged the veteran in, Buddy Roberts in, as the tag partner of the 20-year-old Hayes and the 18-year-old Gordy. And yes, people, people forget Gordy was, you know, he... He's he got his start in the business at age fourteen due to his size, and they say he was a natural at fourteen. So just think about that for a minute. Oh, 
one of the greats. And I, you know, I hate to, yeah, Gordy really, you know, unfortunately, it was a sad, you know, sad story in Gordy's life and and career in the later years of his uh, career. You know, I I do look at this Russian with the blonde hair sticking out of the back of his mask there. Not that, you know, not that Russians can't have blonde hair, just Ivan Drago, maybe, behind this mask. (laughs) And uh, we got, uh, you know, this might be, I think this might be Victory's last appearance as the Russian assassin. Oh, he gets thrown off there from a bulldog. This might be Paul Jones' last appearance overall as well, unless they have any matches taped in the can for TV. I think they're done after tonight in in this gimmick. And this might be Paul Jones' last night as a manager. He might end up in the uh, booking office as a stooge here after this. You know, I, Thank I, I God like, for that. I like Victory in the UWF with, with Hollywood John Tatum, but not a real big fan of anything else Jack Victory did in, in, in his tenure in the professional wrestling. It's nothing personal, you know. I, you know, it's about as far as my love goes over Victory, though. And I think his talent talent levels pretty much right here where it belongs. I'm not saying he doesn't belong on the card. I think he's a more solid hand as a wrestler than Michael Hayes. Yeah. He is a jack yeah, really of all trades. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean to catch off, brother. Oh, you guys are saying he's not bad. I mean, he's, he's one of those guys that you need on the, on your roster. Uh, he's going to make people oh, look good. He'll, he'll bump. He's willing yeah. to work. Uh, multiple times in a night if you need him to, uh, which we'll find Obviously. out here later, a little later. Well, he did it at the Clash, uh, and he, he does it again here, yeah. Absolutely. I wonder if he gets uh, paid twice. Do you think he gets paid twice? I don't think those new new uh, Jim Hurd salaries do that, so I don't I don't know if that works for him. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I, was, I was going to say he's a jack-of-all-trades, pun intended there, but Victory was never going to be working in the main event, and it would take another 10 years or more for a guy with a ass that big to get a push, and even he had to stick it in people's faces to get over. And I'm joking, Rikishi fans. I love Fatu going back to SST. And I'm glad to see, you know, that the SST has has arrived in the NWA. Yeah, absolutely. But we've, we seem to have moved away from the, uh, the forever armbar spot that Hayes applied. And looks like we might be going to the finish here, finally. Victory yeah, shoots finally. him off. Here we go, DDT. Uh, that should do it. That was a sloppy one too. This this match, uh, you know, <laughs> par for the course for this match. What's that smell? <laughs> Bask in the ambience. Basking in the ambience. And that, my friends, is Michael Hayes headed to <laughs> headed to the locker room. Freebird party yeah. time. And he puts Jack Victory uh, away right there with the DDT. I'm sorry, the Russian assassin number one. And that, that, ladies and gentlemen, I do believe is the end of the Russian assassins and Paul Jones. Michael Hayes is your winner. We're going to move on to a Ricky Steamboat promo I have queued, queued up right here right now. And let's go to that with Bob Cottle and Ricky Steamboat and family. Ugh. Fans, we're here with Ricky the Dragon, Steamboat, and family, Rick. You know something, Bob? The moment of truth has finally come in just a few short moments and i've been counting those minutes as each day goes by the moment of truth is going to be put upon me i know that i've been doing a lot of talking lately about the family unit and how strong it is well i'm basing all my strength and all my endeavors upon my family win lose or draw tonight i know at least that i can go back to the locker room with my held up high and i've heard some comments that the nature boy rick flair has been making saying that he is the one and only champion now I've got to tip my hat to the man that he's been a champion for a long time and he's beaten 
a lot of good wrestlers, but I think the time has come. Ric Flair, regardless of what kind of record that you're going for, I'm not going for any records. I'm not no O.J. Simpson going after Jim Brown. I'm not a, an Olympian going for a gold medal. But that World Heavyweight Championship around your waist, the gold, sure does represent a whole lot. My little boy and myself, my wife, we've said our prayers, and we're ready for you, without a doubt. Goosebumps all over us. Family's gonna bring it back together. The unit is here to stay. All you people that are working hard from eight to five, if we win it tonight, you can look upon us as the champions. As he's worked hard, he's trained hard, now he's ready. And as he says, the moment of truth is close at hand. Now let's go back to the ring. And Steve, you know, the scariest sentence of that entire promo was, the unit is here to stay. Yikes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fortunate choice of words there. He was, that was a pretty rough promo. Yeah, um, I mean, Steamboat was certainly stuttering over his words there. And I have to say, out of the three people in that interview, the best one to come out of it was uh, little little Ricky there, Ricky little little dragon. Uh, you know, he came off cute there trying to grab the microphone. But then we had the uh, B-rate uh, second class Miss Elizabeth wannabe there, Bonnie Steamboat. I'm just not a fan of her, and you're gonna find that out until she gets off my TV screen. You're gonna you're gonna you're gonna learn that and know that each and every week we we do these podcasts. I'm just I'm not a fan. And you know, I don't know if it's partially Ricky's idea, her idea, if it was George Scott or who who was. Who play? Who implemented this uh, wannabe Miss Elizabeth type role for her? But I, I've read that and heard from you know a variety of sources throughout interviews and things that she was gung ho and all for it. You know she wasn't against it, walking out there in her little fancy dresses and and gloves and things like that. So just not a fan. I think you know Ricky would have been off better without having that promo. <laughs> oh yeah, I agree. They should have just showed him like getting warmed up in the back or getting his gear on like you know he's a challenger it's the biggest match of his career just let him just show him getting ready like uh, he don't want to talk the talking's done it's time to fight uh it would have been a lot better for him he was stuttering antsy um he had no idea what he was saying he was all over the place it made no sense and uh yeah like he was really nervous like i'm not in it for breaking records i'm just i just want the gold like it, it made no sense at all so um yeah that was a train wreck and you know when i grabbed that um that steiner brother promo for later in this pay-per-view that's not on this pay-per-view the network version of the pay-per-view and i'm gonna play the audio later when i grabbed that you would ask me a questions off here before um when when you were skimming through the show about ring introductions you had noticed that they were going straight from promos straight to the ring and, and the wrestlers were in the ring and you asked me had they cut the introductions out well i can now officially say that yes they they cut m many of the introductions out because when i was uh, fast forwarding through it, when i was checking through it i saw the intros were intact the, the entire entrances from you know the locker room all the way out to the, the ring and what's really unfortunate here is i wa i watched this particular entrance which read in stings and when sting comes out he gets this insane ovation all the way to the ring and that's that's edited out of here and we're just kind of thrown back to the ring with both guys just standing there ready to go. And I'm not really sure why these introductions were edited out. I don't re I don't think any of the music was anything they needed to edit other than the Midnight Express, which they actually play, not the real version, but they actually use those intros so that none of this makes any sense to me. I'm just wondering if this is like the Eternal Home, Home Video release or if the network actually went in and just uh, removed them. I don't think the network would do that but 
I know Turner Home Video, they would butcher their tapes pretty bad back in yeah. the day. So uh, I'm just curious if this is one of those. I mean, it could very well could be that as well. I'm just not sure when Turner went from the two-hour format to the two-and-a-half-hour format on their VHS. But that very well could be the issue, certainly. And here we see Sting against Butch Reed. Reed had just returned here last month to professional wrestling. And there's no real heat here. Uh, supposedly, Reed had been hired by J.J. Dillon. And uh, one of the reasons he was going for Sting, supposedly, was to get revenge on Sting for everything he had done to Dillon throughout 1988, whatever that was. But now we have Reed with Hiro Matsuda, so now this match makes even less sense <laughs> as, you know, as yeah, we get going here. Yeah. And I, you know, I mean, that, WWF. Oh, uh, go ahead. Well, man. they had matches that kind of were just thrown together. Maybe have one small angle, you know, maybe the week before for like some of those lower card matches. Um, but yeah, uh, I don't know what JJ was talking about for everything Sting did and, to him. You know, I don't, I just don't feel like Sting's been used right since Clash of the Champions won, which goes back nearly a year. But he managed to stay over at a high level just based on his energy, his presence, and, and talent. And, you know, do you think it was Dusty Rhodes that, that held him back? Because that's the way I always understood it. It was Dusty that wanted Sting to get over, but not all the way over, if you know what I mean. And, and I mean, after the clash, after Ric Flair basically made him that night, yeah, he should have been I mean, shot that, to the that. moon. There, there was no capitalization on it. it. That's what's really weird, because when you think back, unless you're – uh, unless you lived that era and, and remember that era really well, or unless you're a historian and you studied all of that, the narrative in the, you know, the narrative told is sting made uh, or flair made sting that night at clash of the champions one. And then, you know, he was shot to the moon and that's just not the case because here we are almost a year later and stings done. Absolutely nothing, nothing, no, nothing as far as a uh, championship or a major angle storyline uh, work in a main event. And, and it's just insane to think that, they have that big match on the Clash, and here we are in February the following year, almost a year later, and Sting's wrestling Butch Reed in the second match on the card. Nothing against Butch Reed. I love Butch Reed. But there's no heat behind it. There's no reason behind it. They're just having a match. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. Um, to me, like, I, I don't – I'd like to think my ego, I could put it, to, put it aside, and, you know, if somebody's going to make me money, let them make money. I don't care if they take my spot. I don't care anything. I guess that that could be one of the downsides of being a wrestler and being a booker at the same time. Because naturally and instinctively, you probably want to keep yourself at the top, if you, especially if you made a lot of money like Dusty Rhodes did right. uh, with Flair and everybody else. So like, he's probably living off his glory days. And since he's the booker, he can just always stay there. But, I mean, if I was just a booker and nothing else, I don't care who's making me money. Just go make me money. Go make yourself money. Go get yourself over. Put on matches and make people want to see you. And, and to, to hold people back like that is just mind-boggling to me. And I'm not saying Sting should have been world champion in '88, but something—a major storyline for sure. Maybe a, you know another championship. Maybe the Western States Championship. And that was a joke, people. <laughs> but uh, you know, and I was gonna, you know, and I forgot to say this on our uh, podcast. Uh, episode two, when Larry Zbysko left town and the Western States title kind of disappeared because Dusty, uh, you know, hit the bricks too. But, uh, you know, speaking of that Western States title, I never brought it up. You know, of course, that was phased out with Larry, but the belt had only existed because of, you know, going back to when Crockett bought that big office in Texas, 
Dusty wanted to add another regional title to cover that area of the map. So Western States Belt was born. Dusty, being from Texas, obviously made a big push for that. Of course, that belt never <laughs> meant much of anything. When With Dusty gone, I'd imagine that belt would have been you know, phased out whether Larry had left or not. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can't just make titles to make titles. You need to make them mean something. And the more you have, the less they mean. So you need to keep it limited. And, you know, and you know, I'd say, mo- you know, back then most titles did mean something. Not like now, but they certainly did back then. And the only time I felt like, you know, obviously when the belt, many titles started to mean less was when Crockett took over the TBS from Vince McMahon and they had the national belt, the title belts, the Georgia belts, the mid-Atlantic belts, the world belts. Then there were just became far too many belts. And, and then they were, there was a pecking order and certainly some of them did mean a whole lot less. Yeah, but other than that, I don't really recall, you know, belts not being treated with proper respect back then. But the Western States title, I think, was always just taken uh, with a grain of salt, no matter who had the belt. Yeah, sure. Makes sense. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll go back to something else, too, I wanted to touch on. Um, I mentioned it last episode during the class show when Butch Reed was wrestling Steve Casey. Um, I think you had taken like a, a two minute break there. So I was filling time. But, um, on, you know, on that episode, I was talking about Doom, Ron Simmons, Butch Reed, finding their, their niche after losing the masks and developing a personality of all their own. Um, I felt that team ended far too soon. And we go back to Dusty here. As soon as he came in in January of 91, you know, a month later or whatever, he split up Doom, Ron Simmons and Butch Reed. Dusty clearly had plans for Ron Simmons. I'm not saying that, you know, he didn't care for either guy. I have no idea if there were issues with Butch Reed there, if that was why it was done. But Butch did leave shortly after the split and once Dusty came in and, and created his own regime or brought his regime back. And, you know, Doom had great matches with the Horsemen throughout 1990, uh, late 1990. But they would have easily dominated much of the 1991 roster if you look at the, the teams in there right then. Matches with the Steiners would have been amazing. They could have had a great program with the Steiners. But, I mean, another, you know, they, they worked Sting and Luger. Uh, on, was, was that a Clash of the Champions, I believe? I think so, yeah. And, you know, that was awesome. You know, that was really good. And I would like to have maybe seen a rematch with that. But, uh, you know, uh, maybe even a match, you know, later down the line in 91 with like, at, at, like Doom as pseudo faces against the Enforcers, Arn and Zabisco. That would have been kind of pretty cool, too. But I just felt that they were split up far too soon. They were too over to be split up right at the peak of their, their push. Yeah, it didn't make any sense. Um, again, it all goes back to like, he comes in, he wants to book his own stuff and get his own guys over or develop his own teams and get them over. And there's a point to be made for that. But at the same time, if something's working, let it work until the wheels fall off. You don't want to be too late to where they, they, you know, they stick around longer than they need to, but you can at least let them get over to where like people just stop caring them maybe just a little bit. And then maybe end it then you can start to turn, but just to come in and just completely flip everything upside down just because you didn't create it. Um, is a huge issue that not only plagued the business back then, and play, it's still plaguing the business now, uh, right? Especially in WWE. So, um, and it makes no sense to me. It'll never make any sense to me. The object is making money, and if you got two guys like Doom who have to look, they got the talker and Teddy Long. They have the matches that people care about, and they're willing to, you know, they put on good matches. They were hitting their stride, and then you just totally cut the legs out from under him just because you didn't create it makes yeah. no sense. Yeah. The whole thing made no sense to me. I mean, they had been feuding with the horsemen, feuding with Ric Flair. And then, you know, a month later they're jobbing to the Freebirds 
who had been working underneath, uh, jobbing to the Southern Boys, who I loved, so don't get me wrong, nothing wrong with working with the Southern Boys, but jobbing to the Southern Boys and working matches against, like, the Renegade Warriors, the Youngbloods. So I just, uh, it, I hated the whole thing. And I'd like to say, you know, it didn't work out for either one of them. And I, no, I actually, I wouldn't like to say that, but I, I, I'd like to have the point that it didn't work out for either one of them, but I can't say that because look what happened eventually with Ron Simmons. However, Butch Reed, pretty much, that that was the end of his real big, you know, push in, in the limelight or in the spotlight of a national company, basically permanently. I know he came back to WCW there for a little bit and, in the you know latter end of uh, 1992, but he never really did much, and so you know, WCW was hurting for teams in '91, so it just made no sense for them to split split up so quickly. And I love the you know push Ron Simmons got his world champion in '92, but he wasn't ready for the main event here just yet in '91. His match with Luger at Halloween Havoc '91 I think proved that. I think Dusty hurt him there by making it two out of three falls and. You know, we went back to the non-finishes in that match with the, you know, trying to get as many finishes as you could without the pinfall involved. And Dusty, of course, inserting himself into that match, too, as Ron Simmons' corner, man. It'll get you over, baby, you know, if you will. And, you know, I thought it was a fine match, but it should have never been on a pay-per-view main event. It belonged in a, a clash slot, like a Clash of the Champions main event, similar to like when Luger defended his title against Rick Steiner. Now, I bought that. That was a great, great setup and, uh, you know, match for a clash. Like, I could see Simmons and and uh, Luger working uh, a clash. But, yeah, I didn't buy it for Havoc, and I just hated seeing Doom split up so early. Yeah, me too. I think uh, that was just a an avenue or a, a place for Dusty to get himself in the main event again, uh, whether it was in the ring or outside the ring. He didn't, didn't care. He just wanted to put himself there. Um, so it, it's, it's sad. I mean, I think a singles match that maybe went 15 to 18 minutes at the pay-per-view on the Halloween Havoc probably would have right. done better than uh, two out of three falls where he's just trying to get a bunch of false finishes in at once. Um, and that goes back, to, it goes back to Dusty's booking also, you know. And I'm sorry, everybody. I'm not trying to take away from this match, you know, but they got these guys on early and, the you know, the George Scott, you know, doesn't want any big moves, big spots in the early matches on the show. He's, he's in this house show mentality and, uh, you know, the things that come – it'll really point out how behind the times he is. But here on this show, we got Butch Reed working at Chinlock for most of this match. He's got, he's, Sting's not even, hasn't even been able to show his, his ability, his speed, his, his, you know, the high flying energy that he brought at this point. They're really not letting these guys do a whole lot out here. And I don't think that's all their fault. I think they were instructed to work a specific style. And I think they stuck to that, which is unfortunate. But there is a spot coming up here, I believe. And no, I'd say probably another minute or so where Butch reads, I want everybody to watch it. Uh, Butch Reed <laughs> attempts to go for a lariat. And I, I think sting kind of ducks out of the way and it appears he wasn't supposed to. So Reed like shoot misses the lariat as he's in the air and he kind of takes a tumble and rolls out of the floor and you'll see they actually covered up pretty well. Sting brings him back in the ring. But I, th I think once sting brings him back in the ring, you can kind of see sting apologize. Sorry. Sorry, Butch. I don't want to piss you off. And that's, that should be coming up here in uh, just a little bit. You know, while while we're waiting for that spot, I, I noticed the the lighting in this arena, and you brought that up to me off uh off of, off the microphone earlier about the lighting in the arena. You really in, enjoyed the how they're they're showing more of the crowd lately. Yeah, like this one's pretty dark. I mean, right. the, the bottom the bottom thing is pretty pretty well lit up. Uh, they have a spotlight where you can see a lot of the crowd reaction and things like that. To me, this enhances the show. Um, right. 
you want to see the excitement and the fans. And if it's a pay-per-view, I know WWF did it at house shows when they weren't full. I get that. That makes sense. Uh, and plus, that's not intended for everybody to see uh, outside of like the MSG network and things like that. But when you're on a pay-per-view and you got to... I think that spot's coming here. <laughs> oh, man. I'm not sure what happened there. I don't know if Sting was supposed to duck and didn't or, or Reed just missed him, but... Yeah, but I don't mean to take away from you, man, but I just... Yeah, that's... They covered Reed. up well here. Sting will suplex him back in the ring, though. They covered up well. I thought they did a good job here. Right back into the match. Sting, I think Sting... This is where Sting hovers over him. Says something to him right there. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> Please don't yeah, kick my butt. A, yeah, pretty much. Uh, that that definitely wasn't a pinfall that was supposed to be there because he barely covered him. He just wanted to be able to lay down and call, talk to him for a second. I think that's what that was. But now, uh, so like when you're on a pay per view, that should be lit up. You know, the building should be full, um, and you should be able to see that excitement from the top of the stands to the bottom of the floor. Um, and the NWA was notorious for just keeping it pitch dark. Uh, the focus is on the ring, not the fans. And I don't know. I, that's that's old school. I'm sure it is. Um, but to me, me personally, I, I grew up on WWF. I'm not gonna lie. So like seeing those fans go nuts at the top of the building, and it just makes it. I don't know if you if you're just flipping the channel and you turn it on like a, a superstars or something, and you see the crowd going nuts. Then you then you feel as a person that something's happening, something important's going on, and right. you want to be a part of it. Right. You turn on an NWA show, and they're sitting in a studio, and there's like 200 people, and it's like, this is just TV. They're just filming TV to put on TV. So, uh, and there's uh, Butchery working like working a very loose chin lock, and if just a few moments ago he was pulling Sting's trunks to gain leverage using a chin lock. This maybe the first time I've ever seen that before. And, uh, and working Sting's very, talking to him again. Yeah, they're, they're, you, you know, Butch Reed, between the Steve Casey match and here, Butch Reed does a whole lot of talking. It's very visible. Uh, speaking of fans, Steve. there's a there's a guy right there in the yellow shirt, front and center, facing the hard camera. And uh nice big afro on. I think, you know, I think I might know who that is. Steve, you want to take a, a guess at who that guy is right there in the front row? That's our uh, buddy Dave Meltzer there. That is Dave Meltzer <laughs> from the Wrestling Observer, sitting uh, front and center, facing the hard camera. With somebody from the Chicago Bears, he'll pop up a little later, but Meltzer definitely doesn't get a close up with his name. Yeah. <laughs> they they gave they gave Dave the seat, I guess, but they, they didn't make note of him. I guess they were hoping for a good review. I think they ended up getting one. I'm sure they do by the uh by the main event anyway. You'll see Dave come out of his seat at that point. Sting breaking the the chin lock there, the old jawbreaker. They're both talking a lot. Like, Sting put his hand up over his mouth when he was in that chin lock and was talking. And then they just, Reed just told him to drop down on that. So it's, uh. You know, I, I've, you know, I think I've noticed a lot more here than I have in the past guys talking to each other, especially in the, uh, this, uh, the last couple of Butch Reed matches we've done clash in for this pay per view. Sting firing up right now. Uh, how many times do you think Jim Ross has mentioned Pearl Harbor here in this match? Hard selling. <laughs> I mean, he he seems really offended by this this uh, Hiro Matsuda being there, uh, and it seems authentic. It doesn't seem fake. Maybe Jim Ross is just really good at his job. I, I think so. I don't think I don't, I don't see Jim as uh, 
that kind of guy. And I'm not even like the biggest giantest Jim Ross fan either, but I just, I I think it's all work, but I I just think it's such a tacky, tacky way to go about getting heel heat on hero Matsuda mentioning, you know, an event that took place like almost 50 years ago at this point. (laughs) And some, something he had absolutely nothing to do with. I mean, it was, it's ridiculous, you know, but I think at this point on TBS and TNT, when I was watching my uh, cartoons every day that, we were still getting the old uh, non-PC episodes of certain cartoons from Bugs Bunny and Popeye and whatnot. So here's Reed grabbing for the ropes on that sunset flip. He's got the ropes. Teddy catches him, drops down like a great heel. He gets the ropes a second time. Teddy catches him again. Oh, Sting takes him back. Sunset flip. Two, three. This one's over. Sting gets the win. 20 minutes and seven seconds. Should have went about half that. <laughs> Absolutely. And now, now these guys throw punches. They wait till after. They were probably told don't throw punches during the match. So they purposely go at it here afterwards. But they're both blown up, especially Sting. He's sucking wind here, and they got some light punches. <laughs> they're throwing some pretty weak punches here. Hero Matsuda outside. He's got Teddy Long by the butchery coming over. He's talking to Sting again. He said, hit me again. Hit me again. <laughs> Boom. And there goes Reed out of the ring. And <laughs> that'll do it for this match. And up next, we got the big uh, Midnight versus Midnight's match uh, with Polly and Jim Cornette's Midnight Express. And we're here with Paulie dangerously ravaging Randy. And... <laughs> Wait a minute, that's Jack Vickery. <laughs> yeah, what's, right. what's I'm throwing doing? your game plan just a little bit off, right? I'm throwing your game plan off too, ain't I, Cornette, huh? You see, Jimmy Cornette, you're a very smart man, and you knew how to win this match. You knew that the original Midnight Express of ravishing Randy, lover boy Dennis, and Paulie dangerously. Of the three of us, you knew Dennis the best. Because you spent five years with Dennis Condry, and you knew to get to Paulie dangerously, you had to go through lover boy Dennis. So I told Dennis to stay in Aspen, Colorado on vacation a little while, and I brought in a secret weapon, Jack Victory. A man you know nothing about. A man, beautiful Bobby, knows nothing about. A man, sweet Stan Lane, knows nothing about because you see Jim Cornette. When you go in for the match of your life with your career on the line, you can't win if you're not prepared for the opponent. Jack Victory. You see, my man, there's a big disease going on in America. They call it the Bobby Flu. They call it Stan Fever. They call it Cornetitis. And you're looking at the doctors that are going to cure that disease. And somebody's career in the NWA could end tonight. And now let's go back to the ring. And another great Paulie promo right there. Wisely claiming he changed the game plan to Jack Victory instead of Dennis Condry just to throw off the game of Cornette and his Midnights. And a great pl- promo to explain it, but still, you know, I mean, come on, dude. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's definitely a bad time. Is this? I think this is the only entrance we get all night. <laughs> Is besides Ric Flair and Steamboat, but uh, yeah, oh, we um, got Michael Hayes. <laughs> oh yeah, I forgot I forgot about him, just like everybody else. But uh, <laughs> no, I, it, it's it's bad timing. It really does stink that. I mean, I hate to like always compare to WWF, but this is something that would not happen there. You have a feud that lasted months, and you finally get the payoff or possible payoff where one of these guys are he- heading out of town, and you can't even keep the guy around long enough to make him finish it off right um you gotta do whatever it takes to keep that guy there to make to get the payoff on the feud it just doesn't it's bad it looks bad and no matter how good the promo was by paulie it's still bad and well i have a whole lot more to say about that on the other side of this jim Cornette promo fans we're here with jim Cornette, the midnight express the careers are on the line stand paulie dangerously is throwing a monkey wrench in the works 
Let's make no mistake about this, Bob Cottle. Tonight is the biggest night in the careers of the Midnight Express. Are we ready? We're ready, sir. Right. Polly Dangerously, there is no limit to how low that you'll stoop to win a match, to put something over on somebody, to stab somebody in the back, because you're nothing but a garbage mouth punk. We knew Dennis Condry. We trained for Dennis Condry. We were ready for Dennis Condry. So what do you do on the day of the biggest match of our careers, with all of our careers on the line? You substitute Jack Victory. Say Dennis Condry's in the mountains, stuck in the snow. Dennis Condry's on vacation. Maybe Condry's scared to come and take the beating he knew he'd get, or maybe he's hiding in the building somewhere. But Jack Victory and Randy Rose Victory, bigger than Condry, stronger than Condry, and younger than Condry. But brother, there is no power on this earth. There is no force that you could stick in that ring that's gonna drive the Midnight Express and Jim Cornette out of the NWA. We're ready for you. We've been underdogs before, and we've come out on top, and we're gonna do it right now. We are gonna stay in the NWA. Let's get to it, boy. All right, fans, the careers are on the line, and let's go to the ring. And that's, you know, Cornette's uh, version, and a great job by Cornette, too, selling Jack Victory as a replacement the best he could, uh, noting that Jack was bigger, stronger, younger than Dennis Condry. Just a, just a good job by both managers working with what they had. I think so, too. They did great. Both guys, they did, they, you know, they got, they kind of got screwed over here, but they did their best to sell it in a way that it made sense. Um, so kudos to both of those guys. Right. And for everyone uh, following along, we're going to do a timestamp update right now. We're at 52 minutes and eight seconds, nine, 10, 11. So we hope you're still along with us. And going back to Paul Heyman, though, well done promo by Dangerously, who pretends this was the plan all along. Cornette and Eaton know Condry too well. They planned for Dennis Condry. Now they have Jack Victory. Uh, the Russian assassin number two, the blackmailer, whatever you want to call him. And, and now here he is without the mask. We finally see Jack Victory without a mask. But, the, you know, the same large posterior gives him away every time. And this is, you know, Jack's fourth match between two, between two shows, you know, Clash, Clash of the Champions 5 and now tonight on Chi-Town Rumble. There's it's just no excuse to have a guy having to work four matches on two big shows with a roster this size. For You know, you could have at least, at the very least, uh, given the blackmailer gimmick to someone else on, on that card. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the Russian gimmick, if that was going to be the match, then that makes sense, even if it wasn't supposed to be him initially. With um, the blackmailer, you could have put anybody under the hood there and done it. It could have been a jobber. Nobody would have known the difference if that's what the point was. But, uh, yeah. So, I mean, kudos to Jack Victory, though. At least he's right. willing to go out there and work and be a solid hand for his company there. Yeah, and I think Jack, you know, works well in this type of scenario. Uh, you know, Dangerously claims Condry took off to Colorado for vacation, which is half true because I think that's where Dennis was living at the time. Might still be living there, I don't know. But one thing we do know that's, you know, hardly the truth of the matter, Condry took off again, just as he had done on Eaton and Cornette a few years prior. This time Dennis leaves because, you know, story goes anyway, that there were no definitive plans for him beyond this show. He didn't know what they were doing with him beyond this show, and you know he wanted to take off, you know, before he was misused. Cornette had told the story, uh, I believe it was on a shoot interview or maybe a timeline or something like that, that Jim Crockett didn't like Randy Rose as a worker, and I, I, I like he didn't think he fit this gimmick. This is Randy's first, you know, time in a na unless you count the AWA, it's his first time on a national level, and so the story goes that Crockett. Cro Crockett was the interim booker. If you remember back to episode one, we were talking about Dusty being canned as booker. And before 
uh, George Scott came in that there's there was December and then going into January where Jim Crockett was the booker. And the last thing Crockett did before he stopped being booker was he booked this match. He had this match announced, lose your leaves, because he didn't care for Randy Rose. And his initial plan was to have Randy do the job here and then replace Randy with someone else to team with Dennis to can maybe, I don't know, continue this feud or create a new team. He liked Dennis Condry. He just didn't care for Randy Rose. And that's, that's why, you know, this match was even booked. What's even funnier is once Crockett went out and George Scott came in, Cornette claimed that George Scott had no idea who Jim Cornette or the Midnight Express were. He had walked past Bobby Eaton and didn't even speak to him because he didn't even realize who Bobby Eaton was. And that's, you know, absolutely ridiculous in and of itself. When they were like, you know, the top, you know, top sixth, seventh, and eighth guy on the, you know, being paid, you know, top 10, you know, p- getting paid their, their, their wow. salary, you know, and, but I guess George Scott came up and told Cornette that he was upset that Crockett had already booked this match because if Scott had got to book this match, he would have had the Cornette and his Midnights lose the match so he could split them up because he didn't even know what the big deal was or who they were. So it's just, Absolutely insane. You have Jim Crockett booking this match for Randy Rose to lose because he didn't care for him. And look at this spot right here. Dropped hold, elbow, elbow by Cornette. Crowd goes nuts. He gets the Fargo strut in right there. But it's just so funny. George Scott was so out of the loop. I don't even know where he was if he was even watching wrestling at this point. Gets the job, gets, you know, gets the call and comes in and, and tells, and basically tells Cornette, well, I would have had you guys lose. Too bad, you know, too bad this was already booked and planned, you know, planned out or whatever. So just crazy to think about that. And that's where we're at with George Scott. Yeah, it's, that is crazy. I mean, if you think you're going to take a if you're going to take a job, you should at least know who your top players are. Um, and at this point, the Midnight Express is still one of the best tag teams. You got the best one of the best talkers. Obviously, it's between him and Paul Lee. Um, and you had, you just have a really great act here that could make you money whenever you need them to. And uh, for to not even know who they are. And want to split them up just because you don't know who they are, like that's a joke. That, that's somebody who's not taking it serious at all. And if that was what was going on, why did he even get hired? Yeah, well that that goes to show you where you know where they were in this, as far as wrestling goes at this point in time. And that'll lead to you know some other things coming up here in the next couple months. You know, and Cornette also had stated that um, <laughs> when George Scott had come up to Cornette and told him. Well, Jim, I, I just don't know what I'm going to do with you boys because they had asked him, what are we doing after this, you know, this storyline with the original Midnights? And he said, I just don't know what I'm going to do with you boys. So he had no idea what to do with one of his top teams. Yeah, that's a perfect way to summarize uh, the George Scott era. You know, and lucky, lucky for everyone involved here, Cornette's team and Randy Rose that Paul E. cuts that amazing, just short, but really great promo. And somehow even gets me to half-ass believe it's true that, that you know, why Jack Victory's subbing. And even though I know the truth, it, it kind of works. And I like this spot here where where Cornette had slapped Randy Rose and they try to reverse it and have Polly slap, I, what was it, Stan Lane, and Polly ends up slapping Randy Rose as well. Good comedy spot and great work by Cornette and, and Polly throughout this match, if you're paying attention to this match. And I really encourage everyone to please pay attention because... These managers worked their butts off in this match. Not necessarily the best Midnight Express match of all times, but Paulie and Cornette really do a great job here. Yeah, they both know that they have no business being in the ring. They've talked about it for at least a month and a half. That they know they're not they're no good in the ring. There's a weak link, but uh, 
uh, it doesn't matter. Um, these guys are out here, and they're they're so entertaining. They're so well invested that you can tell they love the business, and that's why they're doing it. They're not they're not out there just mm. getting a check. Tough bump for yeah, Bobby right rough. there. Yeah, rib first right into that railing. Look at those old rails. My God. Kind of turned sideways in midair. Uh, probably didn't want to go stomach first. You know, I have to wonder here. I wonder if, you know, at Clash 5 in Cleveland, uh, they, we were going to have that six-man main event, and it got switched around. Varsity Club came out, and the, there's no video. You know, there's no Titan Tron. There's nothing to explain that to the fans. So fans had to be confused as all hell. So I'm, have, I'm wondering here, did they, did they take the time to announce to these fans that, why Dennis Condry wasn't there. I mean, uh, if not, then this had to be extremely confusing, especially when Jack Victory hadn't been on an NWA TV at, at the very least since maybe the UWF time period, or certainly since before the Russian Assassins uh, debuted back last summer. So, I mean, they had to have been wondering who this guy even is, I would have to think. Yeah, I mean, that's tough. I, I guess you, uh, we've been watching wrestling for so long, like, you know, you take the things like the Titantron or, the big video boards and things like that for granted where you can show interviews from the back and you, they're not just for paper TV it's, or pay-per-view. It's for everybody. Time to get some back heat on then, corner. You didn't have those things. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's what kept the fans in the arenas out of the loop. You didn't get those, see those uh, backstage promos and things like that, that everybody, you know, take for granted now. Oh, Polly's coming to get him some now. And this is where some, we get some heat, Polly on Cornet. It's good stuff. You know, losing Dennis Condry right. here, don't get me wrong. I don't care how good Polly's promo was. Losing Condry here was a major blow. I mean, he was the glue for this match. He was the real tie to Cornet and Eaton. He was one of, you know, he had been a member of the Midnights with them since 83. And really, even Stan Lane is tied in because he's the one that took Condry's spot. So nothing against Randy Rose, but Condry was the one who had the chemistry with Cornet and his guys here. So if, if it wasn't for, you know, Polly. And I hate, you know, I keep praising Paul E here. Like, you know, he's the greatest manager of all time. He just, I just thought he did a really great job here in his first national storyline angle, whatever you want to call it. If you, unless you count the AWA where, you know, worked there briefly with the same, the original midnights as well. But it's just, uh, yeah. it's, it's just a good job. Everybody, you know, everybody did a good job getting this match over. And I, I got to say that. And Absolutely. for anybody, you know, you had asked me before, and I don't know if I touched on it. For anyone wondering, like, why they're called the original Midnight Express, the original Midnights were actually Randy Rose and Dennis Condry and a third man, Norvell Austin. And they worked down there in Alabama uh, right about 1982-ish. So it was even before Eaton and Condry formed in the Mid-South. People forget also, you know, Ron Starr and the Honky Tonk Man were briefly a part of the Midnight Express with with that trio, kind of like a little faction, really, more than just a tag team. But that didn't last long with Ron Starr and Honky Tonk. And basically the... Three main players in the Midnight Express, the original Midnight Express, were Condry and Rose and Norvell Austin. It would have been nice to see Norvell Austin make a cameo here, but uh, I don't think they had time to grab him. I don't even know if he was still working by '89 uh, because uh, I don't believe I don't believe Paulie even knew Dennis was no showing until the actual day of this pay per view. So there was no time to really plan ahead. I guess that's why Jack Victory was already in the back and he was a yeah. Better choice than Did, uh, Steve, Steve Casey, I suppose. Yeah, is was that it for Condry? Like he didn't work anything. No, I think I know. Was, I never. Uh, you know, he yeah. if he did anything, it was the the small. I don't know if you want to call them territories. Those little out, uh, independent type 
territories that popped up, you know, for brief span, spans on TV in their, you know, 89, 90, 91. I don't even know if country was a part of any of those without, you know, looking into some, some of my uh, results, but otherwise, as far as I know, yeah, that was it. Conjury was happy to just go back home to Colorado and call it a day. I think he just became disenfranchised again with the business and took yeah, off, you know, t- took off without telling anyone. That. Sounds like he was a smart one. <laughs> and then, you know, here we have the new original Midnight Express, and how's that for an oxymoron? Yeah. You know, a quick tale while we got a couple minutes here. Um, I thought I always thought it was funny anyway, but uh, damn, it's been almost 20 years ago now. The Universal Wrestling Archives, Bill Watts' wife and his family, they, they started selling the Mid-South Wrestling tapes before they sold it to Vince. Interestingly enough, it seems like they still sell them, but that's another story altogether. But uh, when I first purchased some of those tapes almost almost 20 years ago, and I started watching them, I noticed something really funny, and that was like a week or two before the Midnight's debuted, Bill Watts had announced that Dennis, uh, a wrestler by the name of Dennis Condry would be making his debut, and I don't know if it's a week or two weeks out because they tape two weeks at a time, but he announced that a wrestler named Dennis Condry would be coming in. And then when you get to that episode, it it's Jim Cornette announcing the Midnight Express. So I feel like in a very short span, like within a matter of one TV taping, they had put together this entire idea of giving Condry Cornette as a manager, teaming up Condry and Eaton together, giving them the Midnight Express label. So that's kind of interesting to me that how fast they, they came up with all that and look look at the history they created. Yeah, it's amazing. Kind of touched on it earlier, the lightning in a bottle type deal. The Midnights definitely were one of those things that worked. They're still remembered. WWF fans even know them. Uh, everybody knows the Midnight, Midnight Express. And it, it, that's a testament to how well these guys work all all of them, you know, Condry Lane, Bobby Eaton, uh, Jim Cornette, obviously. Um, so uh, just kudos to them. Uh, hats, hats off to them. Just Absolutely. really great. Cornette yeah. not even on the apron here, just in manager mode there, slapping the canvas. Yeah. It's weird, though, like in that bottom left corner right where Tommy Young's standing, it looks like that the mat's coming up. I don't know what, what the deal is with that, but it just looks a little dangerous because it's further out. Yeah, it looks like the padding is sticking out. For sure. And in more than one corner, it appears. I'm not really sure if any, something's bowed up or, or bowed down or, or if that's just the padding. Yeah, I don't know. It looks like they maybe uh, didn't tie it down tight enough. I, I don't know. But uh, yeah, it's good. one of those things that I, I noticed early on was that thing sticking up in that bottom left corner. It's pretty bad in the lower left corner. Yeah, good catch there. Yeah, very interesting. But Stan Lane getting the heat here is I don't even know what that was by Rose. Yeah, I thought he was maybe going to drop a knee as he mocks Stan Lane. And I, that's that's. Akeem does a better dance than that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you shouldn't be stealing that stuff. Stan Lane, you, using those educated feet. <laughs> and who are we going to get a tag? Jack Victory going to be uh, brought back into the ring here. The managers worked so hard here. They they were so over with this crowd. They kept this match over, even with Jack Victory involved and everything like that. I thought I thought they did a real good job. If you pay attention to Paul and Jim Cornette on the apron, just the way they're playing with the crowd, Paul teasing the crowd, Cornette getting the crowd to rally behind them. And uh, this might be a hot tag here to Bobby. Bobby throwing them jabs. Yeah, he is. You can see him talking there. That might be the theme of the night there. <laughs> Paul and Spot. Now, did did Condry ever show up in Smoky Mountain? No, I don't, I don't, I don't recall that at all. A missile dropkick from Bobby Eaton. First time I might have ever seen that. Look at that crowd. Meltzer's popping big. I don't know that I've yeah, ever yeah, seen like- Bobby work the, the missile dropkick before. It was a great-looking dropkick, too, and he nailed it flush. It was better than Hayes' normal dropkick oh, by a million times. Look at million the crowd times. stand up. 
look at the crowd pop for this. They're standing up. Bobby T's tagging in Cornette for Paul. And, you know, it looks like we're uh, clearly going to the finish here sometime soon. And the fans just eating this up. They all come to their feet. Meltzer going nuts even. I love Cornette had great punches. I mean, he had great punches for a worker. I mean, he, he really did. Paulie always taking that over-the-shoulder bump. Oh, yeah. And you can tell, like, uh, we touched on it just a little bit ago. But, yeah, they they love the business. And they're, they're fans first. And Right. I think they feel blessed to be a part of the business, especially at this point. They're both relatively young and Oh my god. Still Cornette. right. Cornette working the Ricky Morton spot there. They've the uh, expressive worked the rock and roll so many times. Cornette paying homage to Ricky Morton there. They crawl through the legs and the Morton roll into the hot tag. I think we're going into That's the finish. But yeah, you can tell they, they truly care about it. they don't want to embarrass the business. They know they have no business being in there, but they're they're taking care of it and that's that goes a long way in my Rose. book. Yeah, and the, here they are over there working each other. Rose misses a splash off the top, but Victory going to break up the cover there. And it's a Pierce Sixer in the ring right now with six guys. Cornette takes a bump to the floor. And there's Paul E. jumping on the back of Stan Lane. We're getting more guys out of the ring, it looks like, maybe. Dangerously appears to be <laughs> waiting for Cornette over here. Things slowing down for a second. I'm not sure if uh, there was uh, miss some missing communication in that spot, but we're going to try it again. Eaton shot off the ropes, reversal. The heels Stand shoved together. Him. This smells like the end. Yeah, Cornette has Polly tripped up. Double flapjack on Rose. Stand for the cover. Tommy Young, two, three. And there we go. Rose does the job to the double flapjack. The entire Mid original Midnight Express is gone, so we get a two for one because... Not only is Rose gone, Condry's gone too. The entire team's gone. And the Midnight Express take out the original Midnights out of the NWA, and that's that's the end of that. And I guess, Cor you know, Paulie had said he was going to take Jim Cornette's job. He was going to take his gimmick, you, you know, and uh, I guess it was Jim Cornette that took Paulie's job. And uh, back to the drawing board for Paulie Dangerously. He's going to have to go find himself a new tag team. But more on that in the coming weeks. Here is the world's heavyweight champion, H-Boy Ric Flair, Hero Matsuda. Rick, you faced many a challenges in your career, but you're close to an outstanding one now. Rick Steamboat is in oh, the Oh, don't race. get so excited, Bob Connell. I have wrestled every great wrestler in the world today. And you know what the bottom line is? I'm here in Chicago tonight. Woo! Your world's heavyweight champion. The very best there is. And Steamboat, ha-ha! <laughs> About an hour from now, pal, woo, when you walk that aisle and you see the golden stallion, woo, looking as only I can look. Pal, don't be ashamed of those butterflies because it's gut check time. You've got to go out there and beat the world champion. And pal, woo, the Lord knows there's only one, and that's me, and along with the greatest mind this sport has ever known, Steamboat. I'm guaranteeing the world another championship victory for the nature boy. Chicago's gonna be on fire because Ric Flair, whoo, you heard it right. Like I've said so many times before, whether you like it <laughs> or you don't like it, learn to love it because Woo! Bob Cottle, it's the best thing going today. Steamboat, be at your best, pal. Woo! 
very confident world's champion fans. Now let's go back to the ring. And Ric Flair sounded pretty fired up there before we get into this next match. Yeah, his promo was way better than uh, Steamboat's, uh, but that's not saying much. <laughs> uh, that's, uh, you know, the time for talking is done with that match. It's coming up later tonight. It's going to be a fun one. But right now, ladies and gentlemen, okay. it is time for Steiner Watch 89. Steiner Watch 89 continues here as Rick Steiner defends his TV championship against the man he defeated for it back at Starcade, Mike Rotunda. And you might notice somebody in Rick's corner there. No, it's not Eddie Gilbert. Where is Eddie Gilbert? I'd like to know. He just professed his love for Rick Steiner on, on the last episode of World Championship Wrestling. He promised to be Ricky's friend and be in his corner uh, from here on out. But actually, we get the NWA debut of Scott Steiner here in the corner of Rick Steiner. And actually, before this match, before the introductions of this match, even, Bob Cottle interviewed Rick, Rick and Scott backstage. And that, that interview is actually edited out. And I I think I can kind of guess why. I'm not really 100% positive, but I'm going to let you guys listen to that right now. It's Scott Steiner explaining why Rick Steiner is the way he is. Fans, we're here with the world television champion Rick Steiner. Rick, in just a few minutes, the toughest challenge of your career is facing you in Mike Rotunda. Yeah, I, I, Mike wants to wrestle me again for a title, but I got surprised. I got my brother. My brother came from, from Detroit come and watch me win the title again from Mike. You know, this is my brother, Scott. Scott. Scott, say, what is this with Alex and with Rick? Well, I'll tell you, Bob, uh, at one time, my brother was normal. We both attended University of Michigan together, both wrestled there, and both were All-Americans there. And it all changed the day he got in an accident. You mean, I don't, I don't remember that. Is, that. is that what happened to him, Scott? Yeah, well, the doctor said, and the specialist says he can't function in society by himself. So I guess that's where Alex comes in. So when I'm not there, I guess he talks to Alex. Well, I'm normal. I'm all right. Alex just just it helps me out the ring. I just forget sometimes when Alex is, you know, when you know. You, when you forget, Alex reminds yeah, you. Yeah, he talks right? to me. Yeah, he talks to me and stuff. You know, and helps me out in the ring. But just sometimes I forget. You know, you forget. Yeah, I, I forget too. But I don't talk yeah. to Alex, uh, uh, Rick. I don't. I don't have an Alex to talk to. But let's get back to Rotunda and the match and what you've got coming up and facing you now in just a moment. Well, it's going to be a tough match. You know, Mike's a good wrestler and everything. You know, and he went to school and he graduated. And, and but when it comes down to it, Mike, you know, I get in the ring and I just might forget and just take your head off. You know, because I got him in a few minutes. I'm getting ready. You know, I'm ready to win. Tell you one thing the accident could not take away is the ability to wrestle. Yeah, I can still wrestle and fight. You watch. Come on, guys, go. All right, fans, and there he goes. Now let's go to the ring. Uh, well, Steve, what do you make of that? I, I mean, this is not the Rick Steiner that we've been praising for the last two or three episodes here and all right. the TV we watched, like right. his promos were not this. He, he, he was completely, I don't know, man, castrated. It felt like his whole gimmick was just cut from him, taken from him. And he got told to go in a completely different direction. Uh, to me, like the gimmick was working. It was just like a lovable kid type gimmick that kids can get invested in and things like that. And then they just went full on somewhere. They shouldn't have went. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it goes terrible. it goes from you know a lovable guy with you know a, a kid you know kid like lovable guy that can go that goes all the way back to guys like the mighty Igor and, and gimmicks like that and it go, we go from that and now it's uh, brain trauma and you know mental illness and I just I thought that was taking things too far it was unnecessary it killed the character for me and you know as this match goes on I, I just fear the worst for Steiner Watch '89. Yeah, me too. And it's sad because it was really working. You go from that pop at Starcade to new booking. We didn't give him that pop, so let's diminish him. 
and uh, here we are. And it's uh, it's sad to say because this this gimmick and the way he was cutting his promos and his matches and you know just adding new things and was really tinkering with the gimmick and just for them to take it in this route is uh, pretty bad. I know uh, you mentioned that to me like before and listening to it like I didn't I haven't heard it in a long time so listening to it there just that's terrible that's bad and i don't know if that was edited off back from the turner home entertainment video i don't know if the wwe network edited it out i doubt it but it just seems odd that it's the only promo edited out of the entire show i mean we even get a micro tunda post-match promo later on that's absolutely unnecessary and pointless so if they were going to edit something out i would imagine it would have been that so it seemed like they purposely wanted to forget this this interview that scott and rick had just just done and for for very good reason i'd say you got the WrestleWare 89 shirts right there. Uh, they're already promoting the new show, which is yeah. awesome. Good yeah, job. that's a that's another WWF type thing. I think they they took and 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 very wisely took from the WWF. And that's promoting your next show as you're getting you know as this one's out there. And now you know they promote WrestleMania a year in advance and whatnot. But that's you know that's something that was definitely un un NWA at the time. You know, and that's what I noticed all the way back going to our very first podcast when Animal came out and was wearing a Shy Town Rumble pro uh t-shirt like a week or two after Starcade. I was really shocked about that, but now we see the fans here. They're clearly already selling Wrestle War shirts, which is the next pay-per-view. Uh, and they're already, you know, they already got, we already got some uh, Wrestle War shirts in the crowd. So very cool. Very cool. Uh, I like it. By the merchandising people in, involved anyway. Yeah. And it's like a constant reminder, you know, like you go home, you wash your shirt, you hang it up, put it in your dress or whatever you may do. And you wear, you know, three or four days later, it's going to be a constant reminder. Like, oh, yeah, WrestleWars coming up and whatever that is. I almost have so to wonder, they're, they're, you know, you notice the only two people that I, I can see wearing the WrestleWars shirts are in the front row facing the camera. You almost have to wonder if they were placed there. Did they give them those shirts and ask them to wear it? You know, I'm not I'm not saying that's what, what it is, but it just seems very odd that as you look around, there are no other really, there aren't really many other WrestleWars shirts in the crowd. Well, I see a few more, again, in the front row over here to the right. So it's just, or no, those same people, just a different camera angle. So it's kind of interesting, yeah. you know, now that I, I was look, thinking at, that look too. at it again. wonder who they are, but Rick's yeah, it's an older one. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not really sure. I saw Rick there looking at his hand, looking at Alex and it's so funny to think of. And that's clearly a dusty story, you know, a dusty gimmick that he gave Rick Steiner, which may be why they eventually phased it out. You know, I, I mentioned on a previous podcast that, that it was taken from Killer Carl Cox. And, and what happened was Carl Cox was a, a longtime veteran of the wrestling business. And Dick Murdoch really idolized him and stole and took a lot for, from him, including the brain buster and things like that. So naturally, Dusty, you know, took some things from him, too, here. Because, you know, when Dusty was working Florida and getting over and selling tickets for like a freaking decade or longer after he turned babyface on Pac Song back in the early to mid early, early 70s. Carl Cox, you know, would come through and he came through and, uh, you know, people say certain things about Cox. They question his, uh, you know, certain things that he did in real life. I don't I, I don't know. I never knew the man. I don't I never met the man. I can't say that they're factual, but there had certainly been talks of him being racist and that his initials KKK were done on purpose. Uh, but Cox did work the racist gimmick from time to time. And he did that in Florida and it got so heated with Rocky Johnson that they needed to take Cox off TV for a little bit. And I think he, maybe he went away for a couple months. And when he came back, the other thing Cox liked to do, which I think Dick Murdoch also stole was have fun. If Cox wasn't taking something serious, he had a 
ton of fun in the ring. And he invented Alex. Alex was this make-believe guy that he spoke to in the ring and looked up over his shoulder or up in the sky and got advice from Alex and whatnot. And, and, you know, here we see Alex and Dusty was there, obviously, at the time, and it got over. And here we are, you know, we get a resurgence of Alex like 12 years later. And just think, you know, Alex has more years in the business than Rick Steiner does. So, <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty awesome. It's just those it's those little things that you really don't know about, like unless you you study the business and want to learn about the history of the business. Um, to me, Alex was always just the guy that Rick Steiner talked to, um, but I didn't know the significance of it as far as Carl Cox and those things. So uh, it's just one of those things that's pretty cool that people borrow and take and implement themselves that you know work. It worked for Rick Steiner. It worked for. It sounds like it worked for Carl Cox as well. It looks like Steiner was supposed to catch Rotunda there on that. I thought they still did. That's, that's probably the best. Uh, seeing Mike Rotunda do a body block just is amazing for me. And I know he was a hell of an athlete, man, but you just you just didn't see Rotunda do moves like that very, very often, especially as a heel, which is what he worked as for the majority of his career uh, from the late 80s onward. You know, but Steiner being pushed now as this – uh, mentally challenged individual, you know, to quote Jim Cornette, uh, they just made Rick Steiner flatter than a plate of piss. I mean, that's pretty much it. And here's, here's uh, these stiff, stiff, uh, just gave him some forearms across the side of the head there. And it looked like it may have knocked, knocked Rick a little loopy. He's kind of shaking it off there. I think that's more than just a, a work cell. <laughs> yeah. Guys, and he but looks like he busted his nose as well. Yeah. He got him good with those cross faces. But these guys probably like to work snug with each other. They probably had fun with that. They both have, you know, uh, college backgrounds, and, and they liked working snug, and they, they knew each other from the time they were working together as varsity clubs. So maybe Rick didn't appreciate the uh, – yeah, there he is, the nose, yeah. Maybe he didn't appreciate getting his nose busted there, but I'm sure they appreciate uh, <laughs> the stiff – the snug work from one another. Oh, yeah. I'm sure when you're in there with your friends and your buddies that it's always more fun beating each other up a little bit. And, you know, not just that promo, and I wanted to mention this because we have the audio off on the show, not just that promo where they basically, you know, explain Rick Steiner's behavior, but all of a sudden during this match, Steiner's forgetting how to capitalize on things. He's forgetting how to go for a cover. He's trying to go to the top rope when it doesn't make any sense. Even the announcers are starting to try to make Rick out as like a buffoon in the ring, like he's not really, you know, capable and it's just like, well, where the hell was that when he was in the varsity club? Or where the hell was that the last couple of months when he's been over his hell and just murdering his opponents? Now, all of a sudden, he doesn't know, you know, when to go for a cover. It's just, I, I didn't care for care for this at all. This entire gimmick change. Or, I think they went a different route here, obviously, during this George Scott era. And it was just a terrible decision. I think so, too. Is uh, Like I said, like they didn't get him over themselves. The booking guy didn't get him over. So it's like, let's cut him off. and try to start over maybe if we make him men mentally challenged that he'll get even more sympathy and become even bigger than what he was and uh right. it clearly did not work yeah it's like his character devolved all of a sudden instead of evolving rotunda yeah rotunda back on top here and you know not nothing makes any sense here because they taped world championship wrestling obviously before this pay-per-view this pay-per-view is live they have Eddie Gilbert go out there, tag team with Rick Steiner, cut a promo, promise to be in Steiner's side, basically bringing the first family back without saying saying as much. And there's no mention of Eddie Gilbert here. 
He's not on this show anywhere. He's not mentioned or seen anywhere. He wasn't in the backstage promo with the Steiners. Just all of a sudden, Scott Steiner fills in the, uh, I guess, Eddie Gilbert slot here. I found, I found that to be kind of weird as well. Does anybody know why, like where he was at or what he was doing? I don't necessarily believe there was anything going on. I just think it was, you know, more poor booking decisions. It they just, forgot uh, what they booked? <laughs> well, that wouldn't be the first time in the last couple of weeks. <laughs> now we got some more color right on his forehead. <laughs> Rick's getting beat up here. Yeah. They're have they're probably he's probably having fun too. Oh, I'm sure he is. Teddy Long Teddy Long, the referee here. You know, people forget Teddy Long was a damn good referee. I mean, he was usually in the right place at the right time. I think you've mentioned before that, you know, you've seen him position himself to make counts just so that he misses certain things that he's supposed to be missing. Just really good refereeing 101 that you really don't see a whole lot anymore. No, absolutely not. Um, It's crazy he transitioned from this small guy referee to a big-time manager for, you know, the skyscrapers and things like that coming for Doom. And here we have Kevin Sullivan out here. What Kevin's doing right now is he's distracting Rick Steiner by threatening to go backstage and do something to Rick's dog because apparently Rick's dog is in the back. Maybe Sullivan will lock the dog in a dressing room like he did Sting and everyone at the Clash as well. But here's Rick concerned. You'd think Scott would get over there and tell him to get back in the ring, but it's Teddy Long that (laughs) comes over and (laughs) tries to be the voice of reason with Rick. Right, yeah. But the thing is, if they were looking for a count out here, Mike wouldn't have gotten the belt back anyway. So it was not a very good decision. I mean, if this was real, the, for Sullivan to try to lure Rick out of the ring. And it kind of also goes back to what we talked about with the Midnights. They're, uh, they cut the promo where they said he's mentally challenged. So Scott, could be he's up there like delaying the ref. Like, hey, man, he doesn't know what's going on. Let him give him a minute. That type of deal. Oh, nice suplex by Rotunda. Just yeah, so great. good for such a short period. It's just a couple years, but he had a hell of a good run here in the varsity club. And I know I say that every podcast, but I'm going to keep saying it here until, you know, it comes to an end. And then I'll probably hate on Rotunda for the rest of the year. <laughs> yeah, Steiner's definitely busted uh, above his eye somewhere on the forehead. I'm sure that was hard way. It wouldn't make no sense. Otherwise, there was nothing else going on in this match to call for blood. And I think Turner, Turner had axed the blood by, by this point anyway. Yeah. Rotunda, or uh, Rotunda. Meltzer's sitting on his hands out there right now. Maybe not digging this yeah. match. Guess not. So is, is Scott supposed to be here, like, long term, or what's the deal with that? You know, I remember when I was going through the Observers reading that this was supposedly supposedly going to just be a one-off. I have no idea why they brought Scott in, in here, unless it was just to explain Rick's, you know, injury. Uh, supposed injury early in life. And we're going to the finisher. But, uh, you know, obviously Scott stuck around. Scott had, you know, had, some, had already done some work in Memphis and some Michigan and Ohio t- uh, independence and then for the Bruiser. In fact, Scott was the first guy I ever saw do the 450 splash back in, like, 1987. Blew my mind. That's insane. But here we go. This is, again, playing to Rick Steiner's um, mentally challenged abilities here as he pins himself to the mat with his sleeper and doesn't even realize that he's lost the match, even though he heard Teddy Long making a count and he wasn't going for a pin. Rick Steiner believes he's won, and Scott Steiner believes that Rick has won. Teddy Long, however, explains to them that didn't happen. And this was absolute garbage. That finish was garbage. And that only took two months to kill Steiner Watch 89. Way to go, George Scott. Kill something that organically got over on a large scale, but let's bring in the Iron Sheik. 
it, it's just you, George Scott. I mean, oh, man. And this, ladies yeah. and gentlemen, this, ladies and gentlemen, unfortunately, concludes Steiner Watch 89. Steiner Watch 89! And now we go to a roadies promo. And we're here with the World Tag Team Champions, of course, the Road Warriors, Paul Ellering, Hawk. Just a matter of moments now. A tough challenge he faces you in the Varsity Club. A tougher challenge for the Varsity Club. You see, Chicago today, tonight, is like the OK Corral at high noon. Lion Earp and the rest of the gang, except that they use bullets. We don't. Tell them why, animal. Because dead men can't feel pain. Kevin Sullivan, I guarantee all the people out there, and especially in our hometown of Chicago, no matter what it takes, we will get you up. And when 16,000 people are cheering for us to rip your head off, we're going to do it. We're tired of you. Get in our face. We're going to get rid of you once and for all. Tell them, Paul. You know, Bob, the cards are dealt. It's time to play out the hand. And the bottom line is, you got to go against this man, the animal. You gotta go against the Hawk. You're facing the best team in professional wrestling today. Let's go and take care of business the only way we know how, and that's to beat them up. Fans are ready and they're on their way. Let's go to the ring. I always love the roadies selling Chicago as their hometown when they come to the Chicago, even though they were Minnesota boys. An animal rocking that neon green paint. I love that paint on them. Uh, I don't. I did too. I don't want to take away from this match, so we're gonna. I want to, but I wanted to point this out real quick. You know, I've noticed a lot of emphasis on these promos between every single match here on the on the pay per view. Another, again, another big WWF type thing. And I, I just, I, I noticed that as the pay per view just keeps going, we're getting a promo between every really utilizing interviews here. I thought that was another good decision. I think um, so too. Uh, what did you prefer? Did you prefer it this way, where it was in between matches, or did you like the WWF style where they did like a whole bunch of them? Like, you do four or five matches, do a bunch of promos, go to your five-minute intermission, and come back with some more. Like, yeah, what was your preference? I was never really a big fan of the intermission. I understand that they thought that was a necessity. That had always been something they had utilized was an intermission in the middle of their, their show uh, for the fans. Once they realized they didn't need that and they got away from that, I, I didn't mind that. I thought I would re- – let me put it this way. I would much rather have those backstage interviews during intermission than nothing and getting a 20-minute countdown while the fans were running to concessions. Because that was the whole point of those interviews. This was the kill time for the people at home while the people in the arena were going and buying beer, taking a piss, you know, whatever they were doing. But I don't want right, to take away yeah. from this match here. Lex Luger, man, just looks amazing. He peaked here as a wrestler, I think. And I'm not saying he didn't have a few more good years in him as well. But, I mean, he just... The, the stuff he was doing at this point was next level for Lex Luger. I mean, slingshot, sunset flips, you, you know... You know, I think he misses here. He tries a top rope body block in this match and, and crashes and burns. Maybe it's another match, but just you don't see Luger going to the top rope very often, much less, you know, trying a, a flying body block. And, and it looked good. So I just I think Luger really peaked here as far as his, his offensive repertoire anyway. I'll put it that way. Yeah, I think so as well. This is the best he was. Um, I think he, he enjoyed his time at the Horseman. He got he learned a lot. And he finally had the confidence in 89, what, three years in, that um, he was kind of experimenting. He, he had his base down. Now he's just expanding on what he already knew how to do successfully. Um, one thing that's funny, Meltzer marked out pretty hard when he got Wyndham up on that gorilla press. Right. He's marking out on that clothesline, too. Like, I thought he was a Luger hater. <laughs> and if, 
And if you watch Luger, you know, at any other time in his career too, right here, his speed around the ring is just another level compared to any other time in his career. He's really trimmed down here, and he's just really, uh, just really fast-paced and, and getting around the ring really fast. Just a lot more fun than the uh, maybe the more methodical, slow and plodding Lex Luger that that we saw in other times in, in his career. Yeah, it doesn't hurt to be working people in the four horsemen night oh, in and night out. Right. Here you and go. You know, this is up to the top. Oh, this might be the crossbody spot I was I was talking about before. I mean, yeah, man, he took that thing head on. You wouldn't see Lex Luger do that in a few years ever again. <laughs> so No, absolutely you know. not. And I was going to say, you know, uh, for everyone listening, watch for Barry Windham going in here. As his, you know, his hand already needs surgery going into this match, and they do a spot eventually, pretty soon, they do a spot where Barry punches the ring post and supposedly breaks his hand or breaks his wrist or whatever, and he actually blades his hand when, when he sells it, and it's just great selling uh, on the hand of Wyndham for the rest of the match. It's, he acts like he can't do much, and he just the psychology is amazing. He tries to punch Luger. It hurts. He doesn't have the grip to keep the claw on Luger, even though he tries to apply it. Even climbing the turnbuckles later when he goes for the superplex, it's you know he try he, he he attempts to grab the top rope, and this is like next level stuff to to think just to think like this as a true veteran, true pro, uh, to grab the top rope to pull yourself up and and act like oh you know you've strained your hand, your your injured hand, trying to just climb up the buckles, and you don't you wouldn't see you know most the majority of wrestlers then or now even think to do that. So it's just amazing. And I wanted to point that out in advance so when it happens, people are looking for it and they can see just how great, one of the greatest wrestlers of all time, Barry Windham. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you, the punches, that's obvious. Um, the claws, obvious. But, like, you don't even think it's just natural to grab onto something when you're pulling yourself up. So you don't even really think about that. And for him to even, in the middle of a match on a pay-per-view, to think about those things just tells you how invested and how much he cares um, about the craft and the art of professional wrestling. And like you said, he's one of the greatest in-ring performers of all time. Right. Uh, when, especially at this time frame. And Wyndham, another unfortunate soul that uh, got stuck with Hiro Matsuda's manager after JJ took off for the WWF. And we have that human cardboard cutout Hiro Matsuda at ringside here, though you wouldn't know it. Lariat there by Wyndham. What's that? He's not even like standing on the hard cam to keep himself I, visible. I, I just now finally saw. I was looking for him and I couldn't even find him. I finally see him, and he's out here. And they're outside, and we're probably getting close to that spot I was talking about where Wyndham breaks his hand on the ring post. There's Luger setting it up up against the post, and right there it is. Oh. Just a great sell job by Wyndham. He's sitting there. You can see he's blading his hand right now. And then the blood will actually come out from under the glove just to make sure you see it. And Matsuda has no idea what to do. He's hiding the blade. <laughs> That's about all he can do. Well, I know that, but I mean, when Wyndham was down, like he didn't even come over and check on him. Like, I get it. He had to be in his spot, but. Oh, no, I know what you meant. I'm just. Uh, but yeah. I, I've given I, up I on Hero. I, I gave up on Hero Matsuda the first, first day in, so. I ain't gonna lie. He has a, he has a good look. I mean, he looks really good, and he he's believable oh, there, as far as... There he goes. That nice big punch from Wendell, and he's selling it. Yeah, Matsuda, yeah, if Matsuda had any type of charisma or could speak a little better uh, understandable English, you know, for cutting promos, I I think anybody in that, if they if they were had charisma and could talk, they they should be able to get over. 
especially with his, you know, uh, former, you know, past credentials. But yeah, it wasn't oh, yeah. happening here. I don't know who brought his name up and got him in here. I don't know if it's somebody George Scott, you know, brought in from the, you know, years gone by or what, what happened here. Matsuda, had, you know, owned part of the Florida office with Eddie Graham for quite a while. But by this point, no, you know, he certainly wasn't in the Florida office anymore. Absolutely not. Just That's good, crazy. good stuff here. Wyndham continuing to say, I think maybe going for the claw here, and he can't get a good grip. Just really good stuff. And you wonder, like, they've been pushing the hell out of Kendall Wyndham on TV as, as Barry's brother now, which he is. But I mean, they've been pushing the hell out of them together, and there's no Kendall Wyndham ringside here. Maybe, maybe I would have had him get involved a little bit here, some shenanigans to give Barry the upper hand a little better, because it seems like most of this match is. Barry on top, but continuously, you know, he's injured. And so he can't really take full control. And then there's really, as you'll see, you know, near the end of this match, there's really no big comeback for for Luger either. So it's just, it, the whole match is interesting. And Luger looks like he took a good shot in the eye there. Uh, right over his eye, looks like his uh, eyebrows split wide open. Yeah, and Wyndham there, he went to the back, the back elbow instead of punching um, just to keep the offense going. So it's like he even thought even more of it. Like, I tried to punch and it didn't work. So now I got to come up with other ways to do do my offense with my right arm or my right, right that's hand. A, that's another good point. Yeah, he, he moves away from one move and goes for another. Uh, he did lay a shot in there. But he does seem to realize, you know, one, one, one move at a time that this isn't going to work. So now I need to try something else. So he is throwing a couple more punches, making me look like a liar. But this is a, you know, really good, fun match. Great psychology from Wyndham. Luger's in the right place at the right time for everything. He's really holding his own, holding himself up here. Both guys have, you know, they're both having a really good match. I'm not really sure what split Luger's eye open, but it's clearly hard way. I think he did that move earlier in the corner, right when the match started going, and I think that's what did it. He got him with the toe of his boot. Okay. That's what it looked like to me. As soon as he did that, it started bleeding. but. You know, so every match on this show, every match on this show so far has ran long, in my opinion, longer than they've needed to, other than maybe the Midnight Express match. Then we get Wyndham and Luger in a match here that basically, you know, goes back storyline wise nearly a year when Wyndham turned on Luger as a tag team to join the Horsemen. And this match, you know, gets half the time as some of the other matches. And maybe it was just Wyndham's hand. I don't really know. But. You know, given these guys 10 minutes after everyone else got at least 15, Michael Hayes got 16. I mean, I just thought this was ridiculous. I mean, even with the injured hand, Wyndham's performing well enough here as he goes for the superplex that I just figure like feel like these guys could have went a little longer than what they get. And I don't know if you saw Barry grabbing his hand when he was pulling himself up on the, on the ropes for that superplex, but that's what I was talking about earlier. Meltzer popping for the superplex, and he's right back down writing notes. I think Meltzer's taking notes there. Luger kicking out of Barry's finisher. Oh, Meltzer. Oh, you couldn't believe it. Did you see him? Jaw dropped. I did. Kick out. Yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah, this is a really guys, good match. Guys weren't kicking out of finishes a whole lot back then. No, definitely uh, not. Luger looks like he's getting in position for something. We get the back suplex, and this, this is actually the finish. Luger gets his shoulder up. We get the three, and I don't understand. I, I just it felt like they were telling a great story, and... They were halfway through, like, 10 minutes into a 20-minute match. It just felt like the story ended right there. And Look there at was... Meltzer marking out. But no, yeah, Meltzer, I agree. Meltzer, like... 
Meltzer goes out of his way to, you know, in the Observer, when he was reviewing the show, to call Luger a good worker and said he didn't want to hear anything, anything more about it. And his, this is funny right here, too. Wyndham Pyle drives Luger on the belt, and I'm not sure if he was supposed to or not, because you'll see Lex get, <laughs> get right up from the pile driver on a belt. And <laughs> Wyndham has to clock him again to keep him down. But, you know, if this was cut, you know, if this was cut for time, this is the wrong match to cut for time. If it was because Wyndham's injury, then I understand. But this is just stupid booking decision. Then, you know, then once again, you, George Scott. And that's all I got to say agree. about that. I agree. And we got a micro rotunda promo here. So while we're doing that, I'll do a timestamp update for everyone. We're an hour and 42 minutes and 25, 26, 27, 28 into the show. I didn't record the audio here for Rotunda's promo because it's really, it, it's short and it's, uh, just it's a micro rotunda cutting a promo. Uh, basically, here all he says is he's the new TV champion again, and he had it. He had the finish of the match planned all along. So somehow he knew going into that match that he was going to get a sleeper put on him, and that Rick Steiner would just lay back with it and, and pin himself. And he and and you know in 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 the shoot world he did know that, but in in this wrestling world, this kayfabe world, he didn't know that. I don't understand this promo, but uh, you know that's what you get with a micro rotunda promo with no Kevin Sullivan there to to cover him. <laughs> That's all you can really do is just laugh. Mike, Mike really has no idea what to say sometimes when it comes to those promos. He, he was pro- prophetic in one way in that promo. He did, he did proclaim that the party was over for Rick Steiner after that match, and that, that was true. <laughs> yeah, for as far as the singles goes. And we're getting ready. I believe we're getting ready for the Road Warriors World Tag Team title match, and they'll be defending against the Varsity Club, Dr. Death and Kevin Sullivan. Uh, another match that's actually been built up pretty well uh but it, it does run shorter than the rest of the card but i'm actually looking forward to it and if you had told me i would be looking forward to the road warriors versus varsity club match uh you know when we went into this project i would have called you a liar steve yeah same here um i don't remember the varsity club very fondly i always thought they were uh it didn't make any sense especially sullivan being in it but just watching this tv with guys like mike rotunda and uh, Dr. Death and Kevin Sullivan and um, even Dan Spivey a little bit uh, right, that we saw before this show. Um, right. I, I think uh, they do enough like they're believable to me for the gimmicks that they're playing. Whether they should be together or not, I don't know. But, man, I was pumped for this show or for this match anyway. Right. Well, it, it's been so long since I've seen a lot of this TV footage week to week and I really remember the Varsity Club with Rick Steiner more than I remember it without Rick Steiner. So this era of the Varsity Club, even though it's in the later years of the Varsity Club, I should remember it better. I actually remember the Rick Steiner era a little better than this, but I don't really remember being into this so much as a kid. But, um, you know, some of it I haven't seen since it originally aired, and some of it I probably haven't seen, you know, in ever. So I've watched, you know, some of these pay-per-view matches without any context in the past. And obviously that's maybe why I wasn't as much into it as I am now. But, uh, you know, they had two big angles on TV that really sold this for me. And they, they, that was the angle with the uh, two groups brawling and Hawks smashing the chair across Doc's back. And then the other angle where the Varsity Club injured both Animal and Paul Ellering's shoulders. Yeah. I, I, and then the six-man match where they continue to work the arm of... Uh animal and things like that so right yeah if you miss out on the television yeah if you miss out on the television um they didn't really do a great job of recapping or highlighting the videos of what happened um i think we saw the the chair shot 
later on that night. But other right. than that, like you don't really see it very much. They don't recap them. They didn't do a good job of doing recaps like event centers and WrestleMania reports and things like that, like the WWF did. Um, you know, and they, these guys really got into making you believe. So even if this wasn't the greatest feud in the history of feuds or the greatest, you know, angle shot for, you know, the feud, they were good though. Don't get me wrong. But the promos between the promos from the varsity club and Hawks intensity during his promos and, and, and destroying chairs, like physically destroying chairs and things like that. It made you believe and really want to see these guys beat the living crap out of each other. And I think it's, you know, Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, you, you believed it. Like, they just were looking forward to beating the living hell out of each other for however long they got. And uh, these four guys, they don't care if they to get beat up on. And another thing I so, wanted to point out, another thing I wanted to point out on this is, uh, I think it's safe to say by this point, the Road Warriors are turned back babyface. I'd go with maybe Clash 5 or at least definitely this pay-per-view as their official complete turn back to face because they've been trying hard to get over this heel versus heel dynamic here. And nobody was booing the road warriors. Nobody booed them three months ago when this experiment started. And they certainly aren't now. And I, I think by this point, they just completely uh, eliminate the fact that they ever turned heel. And we're just, we're back to baby face road warriors by the shy town rumble here. Good call. And this, and this is, this is so fun watching these guys just slam into each other. Just hard hitting fun, dude. They're, they're not going to complain. <laughs> this is right up their alley. Just beating the living crap out of each other. Oh, yeah, they're having a blast. Like I said, these four guys just want to beat the heck out of each other, and that's what they're doing. And it's all believable. There goes Sullivan right to the arm, still working the arm. I love that. They didn't forget about it. Yeah, I love that. That's good psychology, too. And I'm sure a lot of people miss that, that they've been going after Animal's shoulder for several weeks now, and they they stay on it. And that's good. good move by Sullivan. Oh, yeah. So while we got a little bit of a break here, yeah. um, how, how do you feel about I know everybody says that demolition is just a ripoff to these guys, uh, the Road Warriors, but I never really bought that. What, what do you think? I don't think so. I, I never saw it that way. You know, the demolition idea came from Randy Colley, who, you know, he stole that from Lord Humongous, who stole that from the Mad Max movies, the, the look, I mean. So, you know, with the with the mask and the, and the black S&M with the spikes and all of that, that, that was all taken from the movies. And then, you know, given to Lord Humongous in the mid 80s. And then eventually Randy Colley pitched it to Vince. And then Demolition were born, which were Randy, originally Moondog Rex, Randy Colley, and Bill Eady, Mass Superstar, became Axe. Randy Colley was the first Smash. And even with the paint, after, you know, being on TV for so long with Randy Colley's facial features and that prominent nose, it made it obvious it was Moondog Rex under the paint. There are stories that the fans were even shouting Moondog during his matches, and Vince basically told Kali as soon as he came back through the curtains that they had to switch him out. You know, enter Barry Darso, who was actually looking for a job at that same time. He wanted to quit Crockett because of a bad payday, I believe, on Starcade, the previous uh, 86 Starcade. So Vince, you know, threw Kali a bone, maybe not a Moondog sized bone, but still a bone, uh, by letting him stay under contract for basically another year as like one of the masked shadows with Jose Luis Rivera. So, you know, he went from being the original Smash to, uh, you know, a, the equivalent of the Young Stallions, only, you know, heels. Basically the precursor to the Conquistadors. Yeah, so... But, but if you want to talk... Now, you asked me... I apologize, I went off on a different way, uh, different tangent there, but you want to talk about paint and spikes and whatever, then, you know, you want to compare that, then do whatever you like. But if you want to sit down and watch them, the Demolition and the Road Warriors, they're their own inter- entities, they have their own styles. Demolition never tried to 
recreate the Road Warriors' moves or even their fast-paced power move style. Demolition were, you know, really aggressive and deliberate with their wrestling. The roadies were far more intense and fast-paced and power move-oriented, where Demolition were just kind of beat you down, you know. So I don't, I never saw them as, uh, you know, a ripoff. I, I didn't either. I never really, I never really saw it. I mean, people were, that's a lazy comparison that they saw paint and spikes and like, oh, they're just a ripoff. I know Lance Storm and I love Lance Storm. He's really intelligent. It seems like a very uh, cool guy to talk to as far as wrestling history goes. And he's like, he never really liked Demolition because he just thought they were Road Warrior ripoffs. And I, I'm like, what the heck is that for? Um, to me, like the powers of pain were always the ripoffs. The, they were two muscle guys. They had the exact same pants, you know, just black with the names down the side, the face paint. The only thing that the separated hair? the hair, the only thing that separated them was the tassels that they wore on one of their arms. Um, right. Other than that, like you couldn't tell the difference uh, as far as look goes. To me, like that just, and it's sad because it just diminishes like demolition as a whole. If a lot of pe- a lot of people think that way, and it just takes away from what they accomplished and devalues them as a team. And Vin- that's part of Vince's doing as well. But at the same time, like they de- they deserve the credit they deserve, and they need the credit they deserve. And right. I just don't think they'll they'll ever get it due to outside factors. And it's sad. Yeah, we get the hot tag there. Hawk coming in. Yeah, but I agree with you, man. I I feel like they're their they were their own entities. They were their own teams. I know Demolition would certainly go on record. I've heard them go on record and state that they were never intended to you know rip off the Road Warriors. And what you would ex- well, I don't know. Hawk expected Sullivan to take a real bump there, but he didn't get it. He didn't get one from him. And now Doc basically pulls Hawk out of the ring so he can go into the finish with Animal and Sullivan back in the ring. The two illegal guys in the ring and the two legal guys, I believe, outside the ring or no. Half and half. Sullivan's legal and Hawk's legal. And it looks like Animal and Sullivan are waiting for a spot here. And Doc or somebody's not in position for it. It's a miscommunication. (laughs) Now Animal's going to go for the doomsday, even though Hawk's not in position. Good spot there. Doc goes back to that shoulder of Animal, causing him to drop Sullivan. Doc covers Animal. They're illegal. But Hawk and Sullivan are illegal. Flying clothesline. One, two, three. Road Warriors get the win. And Animal has his shoulder up the whole time, but Doc still thinks he won. Yeah. <laughs> Very sloppy. So, another interesting finish that's three in a row between, you know, the Rick Steiner sleeper pin and the the old back suplex shoulder up spot. And now now this double pin here, which didn't really didn't really work out too well, but just another another interesting pin. But we're le- at least we're getting finishes. So I can't complain there. I'm I'm really happy with that. You know, there's no been no disqualifications, no countouts, no funny business. You know, other than your typical heel stuff. So it's it's been good, a great pay per view so far in the way of finishes. Other than maybe the way the finishes take place, but I'm I'm happy that we're getting a lot of definitive wins. Me too. I am as well. And um, we got we got Coddle back here with uh, your man Lex Luger. This is actually a pretty short interview, so I didn't record the audio, but. Basically, Luger gives Barry props here and said he was a great wrestler and a great champion. Uh, Lex uh, mentions he needs stitches on his eye and and mentions Barry Wyndham's shattered wrist is what he refers to it. He thanks the fans, and I thought this was interesting. He said he finally has faith in himself again. So basically, winning this title gave his character faith in himself again. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, I liked it. That's a great way to kind of explain it. Um Maybe he lost faith that he couldn't get the job done with Lex Luger or with Ric Flair, so now he's he's won a belt again and he's he's feeling more confident and has faith in himself that he'll be able to finish the job with Flair. So And that, that Luger win 
That Luger Wyndham match going ten minutes, it was so good. So good to end so abruptly. And uh, I mean, I would call it a match of the year candidate. Maybe it wouldn't have surpassed any of the Steamboat and Flair matches, but had they, you know, had they been able to go twenty and continue to tell that story for, you know, another ten minutes, I would have I would imagine that match would be like a top five at the end of the year or somewhere near it. Yeah, I agree. It was well on his way to be in that for sure. And what, what what we're seeing right here is actually Ricky Steamboat's uh, return to the promotion as uh, George Scott or whoever was in charge of the, the production made the call to actually play a video a la the WWF build, building up, leading up to showing what led up to the match. So we're actually seeing highlights of the Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat feud right here before their big main event match. And I thought this was a great idea. I did too. They just need to take the WWF style and make them, you know, quick highlights, not the last 30, 45 seconds of a match. Right. And here's where Steamboat actually pins Flair in his return in the tag team match, <clears throat> causing Flair to go insane it, for the last couple months. <laughs> I thought it was supposed to be Mr. X. <laughs> oh, yeah. The mass Mr. X. And now we flash forward to five days ago in the clash in Cleveland and Flair telling Ricky Steamboat to go do the dishes with the misses. And uh, you want a fun trivia note, the first time they did this stripping angle, and Steamboat and Flair did do this stripping angle before, was back in 1978, and, and Bob Cottle was the promo guy there, or the interview guy, the stick guy, and their Flair had brought ladies out to the ring with them uh, for the you know this entire angle back you know 11 years ago. And one of the ladies with Flair on that night was none other than, do you want to take a guess, Steve? Bonnie Steamboat. Yeah, how do you like those apples? Bonnie Steamboat. That's I I'm gonna imagine that's how she met Ricky. So it's it's come full circle. Kinda interesting. Yeah, it is crazy. They're just bringing the same angle to the national stage. I thought it worked. Uh, I really did. I mean the crowd didn't necessarily buy Steamboat, but I we've discussed that in length that it was too goody two shoe. Uh he was getting a little bit of a pop here. Um, but these women and Bob Cottle need to get back out of the way. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, I wanted to ask you while we got a minute. I was curious, you know, the original plan was for Steamboat to debut under the mask with Eddie Gilbert and pin Ric Flair and then rip the mask off. Instead, he debuts as himself, Ricky Steamboat, and gets the win. Which which would you have, think you would have preferred? Uh, that's a tough question. I, I To be honest, I think the, the once you see the moveset and how he wins, but you would know who it is immediately. But that's okay, I think. Yeah, I mean, if you even if you know who it is, still revealing the mask, I, I think it would have been better if he's under the hood. I, okay. I really do. See, I go the other way, and I, and I and I've seen that angle played out both ways, you know, in the past in in different scenarios, and it works with the mask with certain people, and it works in certain ways. I don't know that I, that Steamboat would have gotten a bigger pop had he just removed the mask. I, I, I'll put it this way. I think that Steamboat coming out prior to the match as himself allowed the heat to build up for the entire match. So when he pinned Flair, the crowd exploded versus this mystery guy pinning Flair. And then we realize it's Steamboat and then the crowd, you know, erupts. I just feel like there was more anticipation throughout the match. So I think in this instance, it was a better call to go. No, Mr. X, but I could see it working either way. And it certainly worked both ways, you know, depending on, storylines in the past with other wrestlers. So I was just curious your take on it. Ladies and gentlemen, he is accompanied to the ring by his manager, Hiro Matsu. 
And sorry, Steve, I didn't mean to cut you off there. I just had Flair's entrance queued up there. So please continue your thoughts. I was just going to say, you can still build that anticipation. Even though you know who it is, seeing him take the mask off and uh, show that the mask guy came in and beat Ric Flair, I think it could have worked. But either way, to be honest, it's fine. I think yeah, I don't, I don't think. Yeah, and I don't think there was a right or wrong answer. I was just curious your opinion on that because I think either way it was going to work. I mean, it was Ricky Steamboat. He was coming off of you know a long run with the WWF. Everybody knew who he was already in you know the Crockett area. Now oh, Dave Meltzer's getting serious now. Did you just see him stand up and remove his jacket? He knows he knows he's in for something good here. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, think, oh, yeah. I think it's hilarious. We're two hours into the pay per view, and Meltzer just now removes his jacket, getting ready for this big main event. And while while I'm mentioning the time of the pay-per-view let me do a final timestamp update to make sure everybody's still with us here for the main event we're at two hours even and 36 37 38 39 40 and there he is tommy young holding up the belt and here's a spoiler this if you if, if you really don't know this is the first match of a trilogy of championship matches between these two and each one has its own story so it's it's very unique in that way oh yeah absolutely it just goes to show how great these guys are i'm ready for this one you know, I look at this and I think about how fortunate everyone involved was. And, I, you know, and not so much Steamboat. He was fortunate that, you know, he found himself in a position like this as soon as he walked in the door. But, I mean, Ric Flair and the Turner Brass and Jim Hurd and George Scott and everyone, just the fact that Steamboat fell, you know, fell at their feet right at the, just at the most opportune time because Steamboat, you know, he wasn't going to sell a bunch of pay-per-view buys. But I'm sure, you know, I'm sure it could have been a whole lot worse here. I mean, if you look at Flair's challengers at this time, there was Larry Zabisco, gone to the AWA. Al Perez, gone to Florida. You know, plus the rumor, you know, there was a rumor that Al Perez, that, that night when he was supposed to wrestle Ric Flair in Florida, he said that nobody could stop him from shoot-pinning Flair because Al Perez believed he could beat Ric Flair. So there was actually, you know, talk of Perez talking it up that based on his attitude and his ego and his overall mindset that, since he could pin Flair, that there was discussion that he was going to try to, you know, screw Flair and actually pin him in that match and have to be dubbed the champion, at least for a short term. So that's another reason why he was taken off the show. But I'm just like, I'm looking, you know, and going back to the topic of Flair's potential challengers, these guys, you know, Larry and Perez, they both leave at the same time. Dusty's gone, so you can't even go back to your, you know, old trusty Dusty. Uh, not, not that he was the answer either. And and they're doing this no more challengers gimmick with Lex challenges gimmick with Lex Luger. So who was left if Steamboat hadn't signed here? I mean, Sting with no build would have made a fine match, you know, as it's proven in the past. But the way that they had you you know used Sting, and I I don't know how realistic that would have been here in February of '89. And then there's Junkyard Dog, and, and that is for to laugh. Uh, Michael Hayes, and dear God, what a mess that would have been. Eddie Gilbert, I can't see that happening at all. Even even at the peak of their angle with Eddie Gilbert, you know, that would have made a great Clash Five main event, but it wasn't going to sell a pay per view buy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they would have been up Crap Creek if uh, Steamboat hadn't fallen in their lap for sure. Uh, it saved their company there for a little bit at the beginning of '89 because the guys you just listed, I would have zero interest. I mean, Ric Flair is great as he is, and he can wrestle a broomstick. He ain't getting much out of Michael Hayes or JYD. Now, Eddie Gilbert would have been entertaining, but not enough to sell pay-per-view buys. Uh, right. Like you said, that's a Clash main event, not a pay-per-view main event. Yeah, it all goes back to Steamboat. If Steamboat hadn't been signed here right now, they would have been in a huge pickle. I mean, 
really, if you if you factor out factor out Luger because of the storyline that he cannot get another title shot, all you really truly have left here is Sting, and Sting hasn't been used for anything. And again, I, I'm sure they could have done something really fast and got him over. Had Sting do that Eddie Gilbert tag team partner thing, and probably would have been just as hot as the Steamboat thing. But I mean, really, you you hadn't been booking him that way. And so while it might have worked, and you may have you know saved Grace by you know plugging Sting into the spot, it's it's still it makes you wonder like. What were you doing? You you have no potential challengers built up. So I don't know if Dusty was, you know, had done this on purpose or what the, what was going on. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. The only other thing I can think of is if you didn't want to use Sting, I guess you could have Barry Windham look around and say, look, man, you, you're causing everybody to lose. Leave. You know, you sent out Arn and Tully. You, you made us trade on Lex. You're, you're killing our foundation. And who's to say I'm not the world's better champion than you are? Uh, I'm the U.S. champ. That would have been kind of cool. Uh, Barry Windham kind of turn on him and have a match, but of course we know. two months wouldn't have been enough time for that. Right. right. And I mean, that's another possibility. And I, and when I thought of this originally, I did include Windham in my thoughts, but I, I just like you said, I just didn't think there was, it, he hadn't been healed long enough to really turn him back baby here so fast. Although it's not like they, you wouldn't do that later with Lex Luger when they were in a bind with, with Sting's injury in 1990. But uh, you know, I want everybody to pay attention to the story to this, the uh, story to this match, as opposed to the next two matches. Every match has its own unique story that they're telling in the ring. And this match is basically Steamboat's back in town. Flair can't seem to get ahead of him here. Everything Flair tries, Steamboat reverses. Steamboat actually controls, you know, a good portion of this match. And with with Flair's uh, only offense at, at many times throughout the match is just his chops. And I mean, he's and it it sounds like well, that just sounds lazy. No. It's a great story. Flair just keeps going back to the chops because they're working, and he's laying them in, and he's beating Steamboat down. He's wearing them down with them. He's really laying them in. They they're loud. Believe me, if if you want, you know, everyone later to go back and listen to the, you know, listen to this match, and I encourage you to because this is a great match and great great commentary by Ross and Magnum as well. And they're in this chop start right here, Steamboat fighting back. But it, you know, it's a a great story here for their match number one. They saved a lot, even though this is a really good match. They they believe it or not, they save a lot. Because they, they know they've right. got more coming up. They got the marathon coming up in <laughs> Clash 6. And Flair knew how to sold, you know, sell tickets. He didn't mind jobbing. And I think that's what got him in a lot of trouble you know, early on when his, in his early NWA title runs. Because uh, they gave him crap for selling too much and doing too many jobs. And he got a lot of heat from the older guard, especially the older NWA champions. He looked at it as being a company guy and doing doing what he needed, uh, you know, doing what was needed of him to get the ratings and sell the tickets and what he thought would get over. And, it, and wrestling had evolved, and he was making the right call, I think, in a lot of instances. There was just a lot of guys that that's not the way they did it in their day, and they didn't agree with it. And, you know, people crap so much, and I think a lot of it has to do with the Observer and other people's narratives, but people crap so much on Ron Garvin as the NWA world champion. Was he world champion caliber? Probably not. Was he Sting, Magnum TA, or even Steamboat? No. But to say he didn't draw as world champion like Meltzer did, it was two freaking months, dude. Then I think, you know, it was Meltzer who also printed and proclaimed that Garvin never even defended the belt and, you know, was an unworthy champion or had any singles matches outside of some squashes. Well, you know, it only, you know, it only takes a little bit to go do a little research nowadays. And, you, you know, you go look up results, you can see that Ronnie Garvin defended the title, had some matches with Bubba Rogers, he worked other members of the Horsemen, he worked Arn Anderson one-on-one, 
He worked Tully Blanchard one-on-one in those two months, and he worked Ric Flair damn near a dozen times on top of the you know squash matches that he was doing on TV. So I felt this is more like Meltzer and his narrative and agenda and his readers fell in line with you know whatever he said back then, and, I, and some still do now. Of course, there was no internet. You couldn't look things up, but you know, you're telling me that it would have hurt Barry Windham to have a two-month run as world champion versus that crap match with whatever finish that was with, with Dr. Death in that match at Starrcade 87. Are you telling me that that got Wyndham over more than a 20 to 30 minute classic with Flair where he drops the belt back to Flair? I mean, get the out of here. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. Um, and Ronnie Garvin, man, he can go the rest of his life saying he was the NWA world champion. I mean, I, I don't get why anybody would balk at that. Like, why would you say no or turn it down? Uh, I know the rumor I've seen is a lot of people got offered that opportunity to do that, and a lot of them turned it down because they didn't want to have a two-month reign. They thought it was going to hurt them more than it helped. Sounds like Ronnie Garvin was the one that was willing to do it and didn't really care. And two I don't months know how much... of being NWA world champion is right. two months is and better I... than nothing. And I don't know how much I even believe that story either. I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, there were guys that looked at it that way and did that. I just, I don't see, I don't see guys doing that based on what, what else they were doing at that time, you know? And I'm sorry to be venting on something that happened over a year prior to this. So you guys at home just keep enjoying the flare and steamboat goodness on your TV screens while I finish up this piece of business. But it just makes me think of how willing flare was to be a company man and do what was quote unquote best for business. Winning the belt back at Starcade was better business. I'll go along with that, 100%. But saying that Garvin was a schmuck and, and that's why he agreed or was chosen for that spot, you know, because, you know, he was a nobody, piss off. I don't see anyone lower than Flair on the card refusing to win the belt because they could only hold it for two months and drop it back in the main event of basically your WrestleMania pay-per-view. I mean, just give me a break. And I think if people yeah, would form their own that. opinions, I, you know, and I think if people would have formed their own opinions, Rather than falling in line with other people's opinions, maybe more people would look at the facts instead of, you know, taking other people's words at it for it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm with you 100% on that. Um, and again, it kind of goes back to the demolition talk. It just diminishes Ronnie Garvin. He's looked at as a phony and, and all this stuff. And if he says anything, people are just like, oh, it's Ronnie Garvin. Like, who the heck are you? He's only good enough for a two-month run. Uh, you guys probably haven't watched the TV. I mean, that's what I'm thinking because – this dude was super over with that right hand, the hands of stone, and just knocking people out. The guy was really over with the crowd in the in the territory. It's not like he was just some Joe Schmo running around and they just threw him in a match of player. No, he was yeah. getting over. He was getting pops, and it was just uh, really good. I mean, I thought he was doing fine. I mean, like you said, maybe not champion caliber, but you know, and for, and you for take those- what's given to you. You know, and for those who are who are watching, you know, Ronnie Garvin for their first time in the WWF, I get your thoughts. Like Ronnie Garvin was a world champion, but I, you know, you could just go back a couple of years and go back and watch that TV, and it's on the network. The guy was over, and I'm not telling you, yeah, he should have been world champion, or yeah, he was, you know, main event caliber, you know, year round, but he worked perfectly fine in that spot. He did it. He worked. It was it was fine, and I, you know, I just get so upset. It's one of the you know, there's like a dozen things that I've read over my life, and a lot of them are observer-related. Some of them aren't. But there's narratives out there about certain things and certain matches or certain people and, and things like that that I just I call into question. And the more I, I researched it, I, I followed it, I, you know, I just found myself agreeing with myself because I was second-guessing myself. Was I the only one that thought Garvin 
worked fine in that spot, you know? So I spent years like questioning myself until I realized, no, dude, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's all, and it's all opinion, but I, I still, I don't think it's nearly as bad as what it was. And look at Meltzer going nuts there for Ric Flair. They're having a chop fest in front of Meltzer to mark him out and it's working. <laughs> yeah. He's not biased at all, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, and that's and the, think- that's the sad part. There's just not enough checks and balances with the, the writers of this business. It, it, you know, everybody goes to Meltzer for everything for the most part. And he's never checked. He's never questioned. There's no other authority that has the credentials that he does. So it's right. like people are going to take his word over almost anybody else. And so whoever his biases are is what he's going to do. Um, they kind of just carry that over. I, I love that Rick Flair. Like he never gets crapped on for not doing the job or not doing what's right for business. Out of right. all the guys, he's right there at the top of those people that can just say, screw all of you. I'm Rick Flair. I'm the NWA champion. I've been the champion however many times I was champ. I'm going to do what I want. And if I don't want a job to you, I'm not going to do it. But it seems like this dude was willing to lay down for anybody. And uh, as long as it was helping business, and that's completely different than what you get from some other guys at the top of the top of the heap there. So it's a breath of fresh air, to be honest with you. And another thing I don't understand, you know, they say, you know, that there's no credibility. Nobody wanted to be champion for two months. And I hate to keep dwelling on this, but I start thinking about other world champions. And that kind of relates to this here. We're watching a world championship match. That goes back to Harley Race's champion, how many times he had won the title. And some of those championship matches, were the title changes weren't even okayed by the NWA. That was Harley going into business for himself, getting a pay, bigger payday over in Japan, dropping the belt to Baba uh, without permission because he was going to win it back before he went back, uh, you know, before he came back to the States, before the tour ended. So he had no problem dropping the belt without permission for the bigger payday. And Baba had no problem with that. Baba, Baba knew that holding the belt for a week, two weeks, whatever it was, was more prestige than not. So claiming to be, you know, NWA world champion, even for, you know, a two week run, it, w- it meant something in Japan and people go, well, that's Japan. That's anywhere. You're the world champion. You know, so I, I just don't get, I don't get the narrative that no, nobody else wanted to do it. Only Garvin did it and he was stupid for doing it. And great spot there with Steamboat almost getting the pin as Flair does the flip over the corner and actually lands the crossbody off the top. I couldn't believe that when I saw that. Yes. Flair is so pissed off, man. He's so frustrated that nothing is working. Working, he, right. He's, he's even landing moves that he never lands, and it's still not working. It's still not good enough. And, and that was the great story there like, because Flair never, as a heel, whenever he does the flip over the corner and runs the apron and jumps off, he never connects as a heel. But in this instance, he did, only for Steamboat to reverse it. So it's it's been a great uh, storytelling throughout this match. And this is really the first time with his you know, figure four, this is really the first time Flair's had control with an actual wrestling hold and it's not even really working because he doesn't have it on very long so it it all goes back to that the story that they're trying to tell here and it's just tremendous tremendous psychology and everything this is what wrestling is or should be and you can't tell me that nobody else on this card was on uh was unable to perform like this i'm not meaning at this level or, or this great of a match but i mean just doing more action more more offense in the ring more up and down. I, I know Sting certainly was, and I'm not going to, I'm not talking about the later matches where they allowed guys like Luger and Wyndham to have a good match or the roadies and varsity club for what it was. They, they tried to beat the crap out of each other at the very least. It wasn't exactly, you know, a, a five-star classic or anything, but they were, they were out there hitting each other with, you know, big hits. And, but we go back to the early matches with Reed and Reed and Sting, Hayes and Jack victory, 
they weren't allowed to do anything. And I think that really hurts Sting. I mean, you have a guy like Sting on the show, you give him 20 minutes and you don't let him showcase any, any of his offense. Yeah, you didn't let him. You just cut his legs out from under him. Let him go out there and fly around. You didn't even see a stinger splash. You didn't even do his finisher. No, like maybe one drop kick. I mean, let the guy go out there. If you're not going to let people at the beginning of the show do their moves, then put him at the middle or the end where he can get that stuff in. Right. Have a cool down match or something where he can get the crowd up and do all the spots. But I don't know why you don't want to showcase people to the best of their ability. It never made sense to me. I, I don't get it. I get it at a house show, but not a pay per view that people are paying for. You pay to see the best matches, and that's and the that, best that, that these guys. Well, that becomes George Scott's downfall. He's treating everything like a house show, and uh, th- that's going to end up being his downfall. As you'll find out here in the next couple months, is he he looks at house shows as the way to make money, and that was the case for basically every decade prior to this. But by the end of the '80s, and house shows were still a big revenue. Don't get me wrong, especially for the WWF, but house shows were still big revenue, but when you have TV products like the Clash of the Champions, which is a TV show put on in a prime spot on a, you know, on TBS, you know, by the owner of the company and you, you don't want to give anybody anything. You don't want to advertise it. Oh, look at this. Oh, what a beautiful spot that crossbody where they both go tumbling to the floor. Oh, it's so good when it works right. <laughs> yeah. And it worked it right. Sucks. Very good. Good job there by both guys. Yeah. They both got over perfect. It sucks when they get like hung up, like their yeah. backs. Too. It ruins the whole spot, and they have to. One of them has to roll out underneath or whatever. <laughs> they just but, fall down flat front, and then they roll out. Yeah, but that was perfect. I lost my train of thought, what I was even talking about before that bump. Steve George Scott. Oh, right. Yeah, well, I'm you know, and you know, he treats everything like a house show, and and he's you know fails to realize that this is you know this is big time stuff. This is a pay per view. People are paying to watch this. People don't you know. I understand that maybe his logic was that you have dull matches early so that as the show builds, the moves mean more, the, you know, the, pay, the main event means more. But I think by 1989, it was the exact opposite. By the time you're watching this really good stuff by the end of the card, you're wondering what the hell's wrong with these guys at the beginning of the card. These guys don't even belong on the same show or in the same company as these guys. And it really almost hinders them. And if you hadn't seen, if you didn't already know what Sting could do, that did that did Sting absolutely no favor. If that was the first time you ever saw Sting, you would have asked someone, "What what's the hype? I don't I don't see it." How do you have him out there for twenty minutes and get none of his signature stuff? You get n- nothing. I mean, for twenty minutes, you can't tell me that was on accident. That they just never got to the spots. I mean, that was clearly a directive somewhere down the line to you guys go out there and do as least amount possible. You got twenty minutes, and then you know go to the go you know take it home. Yeah, that's unacceptable. They just, I don't, uh, that's really the only match I have an issue with. Michael Hayes and Russian Assassin, number one, you know, Jack Victory. I don't care if they do nothing. I mean, and then the match after the Sting match, like, I can't remember what it was. That was the Midnight's. They got to show some stuff. So, I mean, Sting's really the only thing that sticks out to where you totally ruined an opportunity to let that guy get over. Now, I get it. You may want to keep Butch Reed elevated a little bit because he's, I don't know what you have planned for him, whatever. Well, apparently nothing. Let him do at some least, moves. <laughs> at least not for a while. <laughs> yeah, let him do some moves. I mean, let Sting do some moves. Let Butch Reed do some things and let these guys showcase some. Give him like eight minutes, ten minutes at the most. This met, let it be a fast match. I don't know what the deal was there, but yeah, it was stupid. Flair finally 
took over on offense here after the figure four for a little bit, but now Steamboat getting a sneak schoolboy in, and now here he comes diving, crash and burn, tried for a crossbody. Flair finally getting a little bit of offense and uh, trying to keep Steamboat down on the ground, but the story continues that Ricky just keeps fighting back. He won't stay down. Such a good match. And I totally forgot Hiro Matsuda was even at ringside until we just got a glimpse of him. Look at look at these two. Here we go. One of Flair's favorite spots. He loved to find guys that could do this bridge up into the, well, usually into a backslide, but Steamboat kind of makes it his own with a butterfly suplex, that double underhook. These guys just had some great matches. Yeah, and the crazy part is the the house show matches are rumored to be way better than anything they showed on TV. I can only imagine those. And now we're going for Flair near the ropes here. It looks like Steamboat's going for the bet. Now he gets it. I thought maybe Flair was going to use the ropes. We're getting some quick pinfall attempts here by Steamboat, reminiscent of some of his uh, stuff with Randy Savage. What a classic there. Steamboat coming back with his own chops now on Flair, and these guys have really, really put it all out there right here for their first, first of uh, three matches. They're really going to, you know, have to top themselves, and it's going to be fun actually going back and watch all these matches because I've seen so many people rank their trilogy of matches in order of their favorite to least favorite, or I don't even want to say least favorite, but best to not the best. And uh, I've seen this listed, you know, in the middle. I've seen this listed as number three, and it's been a really good match. So I'm just uh, really interested to, you know, finally be able to view all three of them within a relative, you know, fair amount of time and make my own judgments because I've, I've never actually done that before. So that's going to be interesting. Steamboat going Same up, here. big chop, takes Flair down, and it looks like he's going to go for the crossbody. He's looking for the right rope to do it on. <laughs> he's looking for the right corner. Got to get in position. Must be going into the finish. Looking for the body block here. Well, he connects, but he takes Tommy Young down with him. What now? What Tommy was doing there is uh, unbeknownst to me. But we got both guys down, and I smell, oh, the fans smell a dusty finish or another screw job. We're used to these. We've seen these for the past several years on many clashes and many pay-per-views. Flair with the roll-up, hook of the tights, but the referee's down. We need another ref out there, Tommy Young, to get up. All the crowd's standing, too. That's so awesome. That is lit up, and you can actually see it. It's so cool. Uh, now there's Flair throwing Steamboat over the top rope. They're teasing a disqualification right there, but Steamboat actually lands on the apron. Goes back to the top again. Misses that body block. And now it looks like Flair's going to maybe take him to school. Ricky counters with that cradle. Teddy Long shows up. One, two, three. It looks like Steamboat might have it, but... Of course, Steamboat landed on top of Tommy Young, and then Ric Flair threw Steamboat over the top rope, so we're looking at a potential you know, disqualification either way right here with Teddy Long coming in playing the second referee in the dusty finish. But Teddy Long insists Steamboat's a champion. Hero Matsuda questioning Tommy Young. He's making a case for Flair. Flair making a case for himself. But And look at that, the ultimate slap in the face of Dusty Rhodes. Ric Flair protests to Tommy Young, the original referee just like you'd see in any typical dusty finish. But guess what? The American dream isn't there. And in the biggest F you to the former booker, if you wheel, Tommy Young walks over, raises Steamboat's hand too, and fans just lost their minds. Did you see that little glimpse of hope? They were happy, but they waited. They wanted to make sure this wasn't another dusty finish. And, you know, this is, I think, uh, the ultimate message to the NWA. And this, I don't see this being a George Scott decision. This this finish had to have been a Flair finish. I think Flair put this together and just to send a message to Dusty and send a message to the fans that 
this this crap's over with. You guys are going to get finishes now. And I thought that was just a tremendous way to end the match. I did too. I never really thought of it that way. Um, but it, it's truly tremendous. That it, Flair gets pinned, loses his belt, but he still gets one last FU to Dusty Rhodes and puts an end to the feud. So uh, just a tremendous match. I loved it. It was just uh, really good. I can't wait to see the other ones. So it looks like we've lost two things here tonight. Unfortunately, we've lost Steiner Watch 89, but I think we've also lost, I think we also seen the end of the Dusty finish, and I can't complain about that one. Me either. I don't think anybody can. We got Steve Casey in the background there in the, in the ring getting ready. Yeah, that's, a, that's another fun story. And uh, there we got Bob Cottle backstage interviewing Ricky Steamboat, winning the world title. Steamboat's going to get some champagne in the eyes here in a minute, and <laughs> he'll go blind while he cuts a promo. Poor guy. But uh, you mentioned Steve Casey in the ring, and that's, it's funny you mentioned that because, believe it or not, this, the pay-per-view was still on the air, and so they sent a uh, basically what turns out to be a dark match out to the ring, but it was meant to fill time in case they needed to cut back to the ring to fill time, and it was uh, Kendall Wyndham versus Steve Casey. And uh, the, the funny story goes, though, that everyone in production and all the wrestlers, you know, they were taking showers, getting ready to leave, and people in production were so busy doing, like, post-match, you know, promos backstage and other things going on that they forgot they sent a match out to the ring. They forgot Kendall and Steve Casey were even in the ring to tell them to take it home. So the match actually goes, uh, supposedly goes 25 minutes before Kendall finally just, you know, pins Casey because they realize they're not going to get a signal to go home. So I'd love to know wow. where this where this hidden gem is in the vaults of the, you know, WWE. I'd love to <laughs> Love to see the 400 fans that stayed for that one. Yikes. Ouch. So uh, the question I have here is Rick Steiner right. is not smart, smart enough to know when to make a pinfall, but he knows how to pop a bottle of champagne and spray it in some dude's face. I don't know that Rick Steiner with his mental capacity should be drinking alcohol either. So then, you know, that's another question. Somebody finally well, threw Steamboat he... a towel there. Thank God. He can finally see. Look how red his, <laughs> how red his eyeballs are. Holy cow. But, you know, going back to that dark, that Kendall Wyndham, Steve Casey match just real quick. I mean, just think about this. You just watched Steamboat and Flair have that match. And then you send these two guys who are, you know, nothing more than curtain jerkers, especially Steve Casey. But, you know, you send these guys who are nothing more than really, you know, undercard guys back out there after Steamboat and Flair after two, three hours of wrestling and tell them, to, you know, go put on a you know dark match, which I'm sure was filled with chin locks and arm bars. We regress back to that. For 20 minutes. I mean, oh, my. Look at him. And you can see him in the background right now. Casey working the arm, just like I said, you know. So it's just so funny. Good grief, man. Just, oh, the fans aren't even paying attention that there's a wrestling match in the ring. Yeah, it's crazy. Only the NWA would do something like this. And, uh, you know, that's the story of Steve Casey and Kendall Wyndham. And it's I can sum it up in one sound bite. But hey, man, at least they got to be on the show. I'm sure they got a payday for it at the very least. So good for them. Absolutely. And I guess that, that concludes the show. Uh, you know, thanks, everyone. I hope you guys enjoyed it. There's news coming soon. You can check it out on Twitter account and follow our Twitter account for that matter. But you can check us out on Twitter at Rassling Grenade. That's R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade for news and on the next episode and what we have planned. Uh, it's been fun doing these past couple watch-alongs, and I hope you guys have had, you know, as much fun listening to us doing them as we have had doing them. And Steve, um, now it's right back to the grind as we review more NWA TV and talk more behind the scenes going ons here in the, the next week and the next episode. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely a grind, but it's fun. I, I've really enjoyed reliving this, uh, 
this era of the NWA. Uh, to me, it's one of my favorite years, so I, I can't wait to see even more footage of it. So uh, glad to be along for the ride, man. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I just want to, Steve, I want to thank you for sticking with me for three hours here tonight. It's been a blast, and thanks for being here again this week. Uh, absolutely. It goes real fast when you're sitting here just talking wrestling. Uh, it's not just the action. It's what we talk about that makes it fun. So uh, just a great time all around, buddy. Thank you. And I want to thank you know all the listeners out there as well for uh, joining us for Chi-Town Rumble. And that concludes our watch-along of Chi-Town Rumble. We'll be back next week with more news and hopefully more watch-alongs in the very near future. Stay tuned to Twitter to see what's up next. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Thanks once again to all of our great listeners. And remember to spread the word to help the grenade grow. We appreciate your support and hope you continue to listen. And for my partner in crime, Stephen Ekstek, this is Ray Russell saying, from pillar to post and coast to coast, you pull the pin, and we'll pick up the pieces right here on the Wrestling Memory Grenade. See you next week. Don't miss it. Be there! You guys got some problems, dudes. Hey, you guys have got a whole lot of trouble coming your way. And when Kevin and the good doctor gets on you and plays a little howdy duty on your coconut, oh, you guys, I see nothing but hard times coming your way.